It's Mike, it's Radio Orbit, KOPN, 89.5 FM. We've got some live music from Caulfield and the Magic behind me right now, and we're going to do the show, as always. So stick around. We've got Elena Tonetti, Vladimirova coming up in an hour. Lots of great stuff between now and then, so uh, stick around, and we'll talk to you in a few minutes. Interesting and strange intro, as usual. We like to keep it exciting and uh, unpredictable every week. So it's Mike. It's about 9 after 11. And, uh, yeah, we got the guys from Caulfield and the Magic sitting in the studio here with me. I can barely see them all. Uh, Casey's over here and Michael Kane to my left behind the computer. And there's Matthew. And uh, and Joel. So anyway, hi you guys, and thanks for uh, thanks for the music. Thanks for having us, Mike. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, let's we'll, we'll just sort of use those mics as this ambience. They'll catch everything back there. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, I've known these guys. Uh, they sort of hang out at the Blue Fugue, the place that I talk about a lot on the air here. Um, my Monday night little hangout before I come down here and do the show. But these guys have been playing music down there and around town and around the region for a while now. And uh, Five years now. As the band? No. No, not as the band. No. All right. But uh, any, anyway, separately. yeah, a bunch of you guys together all doing your s- sort of collective and separate stuff. Uh, anyway, so uh, we've been talking about it for a while to have you come on the air, and here you are. So thanks. 
All right, so um, do me a favor. Uh, take a break, and I'll tell everyone what I'm going to do for the rest of the show. And then um, come back in probably five or ten or so, and we'll play another song and talk to you guys a little bit, all right? Cool. Thank you, Mike. All right, everybody. Uh, it's Mike. It's Radio Orbit, KOPN, Columbia. Let's take care of some business here. Uh, thanks to Debbie, of course, for Free Range Radio Theater every week, 10 p.m., one hour before this program, Debbie does it up, and she does a great job. And Free Range Radio Theater, you can find her on the web as well at freerangeradio.com, I think. Uh, but just, uh, as I always say, get on the web and just find it, okay? All right, tonight we have Elena Tenetti Vladimirova, and uh, she's an amazing woman. And I ran into her or came across her through my friends, Dr. Michael Heisen and Star Newland who are probably listening right now, and I should probably hop on the web. I had a little bit of computer problems, uh, like I always have, it seems, these days. Uh, but anyway, there's a live chat page, uh, or a chat room that's open right now, and I'm sure there are plenty of people in there uh, listening to the program. And Michael and Star are probably among them. And anyway, they introduced me to this wonderful woman, Elena Tenetti Vladimirova. And uh, she's something else. So I'll tell you a little bit more about her uh, as we get going here. But stick around. In about 50 minutes or so, you're in for a treat because she's a real special woman, all right? Okay, uh, as I said, thanks to Debbie, Kelvin, and Jason doing it up before that. What is it? Jazz plus blues equals chaos, I think, these days. Uh, Tech Radio, as always. Before them, Jeff Wheeler, my friend. Uncommon Light from 3 to 5 p.m. on Mondays, getting things going, okay? All right, uh, last week, Brian Trent. Thank you, Brian, for an amazing and informative show, The Story of Hypatia of Alexandria. What a story, all right? What a story, and I'm glad it's being told. So uh, we also played some great new independent American music, Joe Stickley. Uh, Joe Stickley's Blueprint. The guys were actually here in the studio, I think, uh, a couple hours ago with, with either Kevin or, or Jason. But anyway, good stuff. And if you missed it, it's on the web, www.mikehagan.com. Uh, figure out a way to get to my archives and also to the music archives. And you can listen in and share it with your friends. Great stuff happening here on Orbit every week, all right? As I said tonight, Elena Tinetti. And um, what else? We've got the forum up. We have the live chat room up for those listening over the internet, and uh, I love the interactivity possible with the live stream now. It's really cool, and I'm getting um, I'm getting more creative with it as we uh, as we as we experiment with it more and more. But anyway, tonight it looks like uh, everything is working properly, and uh, as um, I was saying earlier, Star Newland and Company. I'm not sure who's with her, but I'm sure she's got a whole collection of clowns uh, and wonderful people. I should say, pardon me, Star. Uh, at the Steam Vent Inn in Hawaii. And they're probably viewing Elena's video right now. And Elena's video is called Birth as We Know It. And let me tell you, as a man and as a father and a guy who's just interested in life on the planet, it's a pretty damn interesting thing to watch. Uh, and we'll talk more about it as we get into the program, as I said, but... Uh, Elena has done just some amazing work with water birth uh, and, and dolphins, believe it or not, and lots of other things involved in the middle of it, you know, human consciousness, primarily. So anyway, there are people watching her video right now at the Steam Vent Inn in Hawaii, and they're going to be participating 
as the show moves along, uh, moves along, I'm sure they'll join us in the chat room. And no one stars will even try to call here. I don't know if, if we'll be able to get the technology to work, but we'll see, okay? All right. Uh, as I said, the music from Caulfield and the Magic tonight. Uh, we'll not, I'm not sure how long the guys are going to stick around, but I'm sure we'll hear at least a couple more songs from them during this first hour. And then um, uh, I think they're going to drop a CD off and uh, let me feature some stuff off of that disc for the rest of the night. But at any rate, uh, thanks to Casey and Joel, Matt, and a new member of the band, Michael, and uh, all these guys are sort of dynamic, and they do a lot of different things around town. They're all pretty talented solo artists, actually, um, on their own without the band. And I suggest that uh, you get to know them. There's great stuff happening around Columbia in general, uh, as far as the music scene goes. But lots of young people that are really being creative and doing good stuff with their art. So uh, hats off to all these guys, and thanks to, uh, thanks to them for coming down here to play some music for us. And we'll hear a little bit more in just a few minutes, okay? All right, what else? Um, all right. Thanks for the emails, all right? Everybody, every week, I appreciate it. Thank you for the nice emails. And thank you for the people who write bad ones, too, and nasty ones. You know, I can handle it. Uh, hello to everyone listening over the web, live or otherwise. We are streaming right now and every week via Cosmic Waves Radio Network. So thanks to the wonderful people at Cosmic Waves Radio. That's uh, on the web, of course, www.cosmicwavesradio.com. And uh, Carrie and Paul and the other wonderful people there Make it happen for me every night. Well, not every night, but uh, every Monday night, certainly. From 11 p.m. until 2 a.m., they give us access to the world. To the world. Anybody paying attention can listen to this program uh, on Monday nights or Tuesday morning or whatever it is where they may be. Okay? Anyway, so thanks to them for doing it. Also, Larry, of course, the web wizard behind my site, MikeHagan.com. I love you, Larry. Thank you for all the wonderful work that you do. And the forum is really getting interesting. I love uh, the forum at the website because this is where sort of community gets built and people sort of build a, a reputation and a personality and this sort of thing. And you get a, get a feel for what sort of things they like to post and what their politics are and this sort of thing. But anyway, lots of things going on on the forum. And it's not just uh, uh, silliness. There's lots of really interesting people there that are posting fun and uh, interesting stories and then others discussing and debating them, all right? So thanks to Larry for putting that all together. I can't believe it when I look at my own website. I say, oh, my God, I could never have imagined uh, having something like that uh, with my name associated with it. And the reason that I can is because of Larry Norager, and he's the most brilliant and amazing guy, um, one of the most, certainly, that I've ever met. And he's also a hell of a talented musician, by the way, uh, who's played with some of the greatest jazz musicians in the history of the game. So, anyway, Larry, the man, check it out on the web, okay? Let me know what you think. www.mikehagan.com. All right, we're also trying to build a mailing list of listeners. So, if you go over to the site, hop on there. Let me know who you are. It's very simple. I don't ask for a whole lot of information. I'm not looking to get in your pocket. All right? Just give me a valid email address and... Uh, Pick a name and a password or something, and then you can have access to the site and the archives and everything, and all the music and all the art and the poetry and everything that, that, that we're building here. And uh, I encourage everyone to get involved. I love it. Okay? For those of you who have already done it, thank you. Okay? All right. Uh, and for those of you who are encouraging others, like Jeff and William from Yachai Music, this incredible 
a duo from Phoenix uh, making music from the Peruvian Amazonian jungle. Uh, my friends, Jeff and, and, uh, and William, uh, making this incredible music, and they've got a CD that's called Sweet Mother Mercy. And if you want to hear Sweet Mother Mercy, just go register at my site, and you can download it for free. They make it available to everybody. And it's beautiful music, inspired by Don Augustine, a wonderful shaman, and an elder statesman of all of ours uh, in the highlands down there in South America, and someone who is a, a wonderful, wonderful person. And the music that he inspires in these two guys is wonderful, too. So, anyway, thanks to the guys from Yachai for making that available. And also, um, you know, Larry, he has screensavers and all kinds of stuff that you can just grab on the site, okay? All right, the email address, orbitradio at aol.com. That's how you want to get a hold of me, orbitradio at aol.com. And uh, through the website, www.mikehagan.com. It's H-A-G-A-N.com. And you can get a hold of me easily through these two vehicles, okay? And, um, well, let's see. We got Casey and the guys in the hallway. I'm going to take two more minutes here and talk about some upcoming guests, and then we'll have another song. Actually, I take that back. Let's have them come on back in. Come on in, you guys, if you can hear me. And, uh, and we'll, do, uh, we'll talk about some upcoming guests in a few minutes. But let's say hi to the guys in the band here, and we'll find out what's happening with them and their world and what they want to do and what's happening in the music scene around Columbia and other things. Because I know uh, I haven't talked to him in a week, so that means something new is certainly <laughs> happening. Uh, so uh, before we play our song, Casey... Hello, thank you for How's being here. All right, and uh, Matt? Yeah. Joel, what's the latest? What are you guys up to? Well, um, I know there's big news. You might as well break <laughs> it, you mean, huh? Yeah, we're kind of a turning point. Uh, Matt and Joel are going to go and do their solo stuff, which they've been doing for a while. So, Caulfield, we, we might be at an ending point. We might be at a point where we um, get some new rhythm and bass. Uh -huh. um, so, um, yeah, you and Michael are starting to play a little bit together. I know you guys are getting along. And yeah, and we're, we're going to start collaborating, doing music together. And um, I think Matt and Joel have always done music together. I think they're going to keep doing that and um, keep keep trying to do their stuff, too. All right. So. Hey, do me a favor. Let's, let's swing that mic in between you two and just ha sort of hang it in the air there. That's great. And then... Um, Casey, we definitely need you on that for vocals, and then Michael, you're okay. Just hang that one up in the air, too. So, Joel, what's your story? You're a talented young guy around town. I love listening to you play. Um, yeah, um, Casey and I started this Caulfield and the Magic thing a long time ago, and it was... A year uh, ago. Yeah, it was a nice little outlet because I've never played drums in a band before. Yeah, I know you play a lot of different instruments. Yeah, so. but because I've been burned so many times by people I've played in bands with, I told Casey from the beginning... I'm so young, and I've, I've already burned so many yeah, times. Yeah, burned so many times. I told Casey... <laughs> I want to play drums this way. I don't want to have any responsibility as far as writing songs goes. I just want to beat the crap out of my drums. You know? It's funny, you know, my uh, for, for people who hear me on the air, I have a good friend. His name is Johnny Payton. He's a cab driver in um, in Denver, and you met him. Uh, he's the guy that wears the funky hat in his hair. He has long blonde hair, and he was here a month ago or so. And he told you played. He told you that you played like Keith Moon. Oh yeah, that's right. I <laughs> right, that guy. Right. right. Okay, that's the guy. So anyway, that, that that always sticks with me because now when I see you play, you do remind me of Keith Moon banging on those drums. I won't do yeah. that in here. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, but didn't, we didn't. We didn't. We wouldn't even let you bring a kick drum up. So yeah, it would fit too. I'm <laughs> ah yeah. All right, get over it. I'll get over it. All right, so, so he uh, started and he he got to be he got to be a good drummer and we we practiced so much and I got a lot tighter. On 
my material. Uh-huh. And, it really uh, lives up to that no responsibility thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I, I do I do a lot of it, and Matt and Matt picked up a lot of slack once he oh. stepped in. And we went through a few bases before we finally came to Matt, and it was the same thing with Matt as with Joel. He hadn't really picked up a base until Caulfield. And right, right. He picked it up, and, you know, a lot more quickly than Joel just fucking rocked it out. Hey, you Oh, You know what? I got to... Okay. Let's just... Where's the radio? Where's the radio? Sorry. Even happen. So Matt, Matt, what's your instrument of choice? My instrument of choice is the the guitar. Really? The, the computer, not, not, not the bass the computer guitar. Computer Whoa, is hey. Aha! Uh-huh. It was it's funny to me that this lasted as long as it did because you've got three <laughs> singer songwriter guitar. Right, well, right. Four, four now, now, right? Yeah. All playing in a band together, all listening to whatever Casey says. Oh uh, so, yes, that's <laughs> never good. But that's all right. It's cool that you guys are uh, are collaborating. And like I say, I say it every week, but there's a tremendous amount of talent around town here. And the thing to recognize is that there's a tremendous amount of talent everywhere. And the thing that makes a scene happen is people letting it down. You know? I mean, if you go to Seattle in 1989, in 1988, and see what was happening there... It wasn't a whole bunch of egos. It was a bunch of people sitting around in the park, jamming together. You never knew what was going to happen at night. Uh, and everybody collaborated. Everybody shared stories. And women and everything else. I mean, but uh, that sort of happens in the rock and roll scene regardless, it Those seems like. Those yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, you, know, you can make a scene happen. You know, Raleigh, North Carolina, and Minneapolis, and Austin and Seattle and, and San Fran and these places they don't have everything they don't have anything that we don't have here there's tremendous amount of talent here and I see it all the time and I'm, I'm a guy who listens and I'm, I've been in the music business and uh, I'm telling you it's here it's just a matter of you guys getting together and doing it we gotta get people that want to come out and see music perform yeah. well they've gotta be TV. impressed yeah it's sort of like build it and they will come too you know I mean uh, the, my, my impression is this as a guy who's seen lots of different stuff is that you guys as artists, that's the way you have to look at it. Not as I want to make a big record deal or I want to go... Look, you're going to get plenty of women. I want to get laid. You're going to get plenty of that anyway, right? Because you're, you're creative, intelligent young men, all right? And you play guitars, all right? The thing is, to take it further than that, you know what I mean? And build the whole, and build the whole scene. And, by, and the way that you yeah. do that is by really collaborating and really uh, you know, enjoying each other's art and following the art. And not anything other than that. I mean, really, that's the way well, it works. Well, the more we do and the more we build up what we're doing, I mean, it's stepping stones for each of us. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And you, all, and, and you may and end up I, going who knows where. I've well, and, and learned so much from everybody I've been with, especially, you know, these guys. It's, you know, I've learned a lot. No I, doubt. No doubt. One of these songs we're going to play eventually um, is actually the first song that I ever heard Casey play when we decided to mess around with a band. I was actually going to play guitar with him, but then that really quickly changed when I found this kit. Uh-huh. But um, this first song, uh, the bluegrass song, the old bluegrass song, what we call it now, I still remember the first time I played that. I was 21 years old, and I still remember that was actually the first time I'd ever seen anybody remotely, you know, my age or my scene or whatever that was playing, like, bluegrass music. Right, right, Even right. though now it seems, like, dumb a year and a half later to think that that's, He was like, giving me course. shit about it. He was like, oh, yeah, you like bluegrass? We're going to have to throw him off the air here pretty soon. Yeah, sorry, we just need an apple right. and a rubber band. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I wish I had my little delay thing. Yeah. All right, so... All right, well, then let's play that. I, I love that song, actually, and it's been a... It's been a um, uh, having Michael on the mandolin is a is a nice addition to that song actually. So what song? Yeah, old bluegrass. Old bluegrass, old bluegrass song. Right? This is Caulfield and the Magic, and uh, soon to be who knows what. But uh, the guys, here you go. 
By the way, that's KOPN Radio Orbit. Later. song and I finally I finally got the mics right like basically at the end of that song I'm sorry it, uh, it's it's so hard to get them right in this space but anyway uh, great stuff now is that an original or is that one that you guys yeah. been playing you've been playing that for a long long time you said right Joel yeah huh. alright amazing stuff cool stuff and I love the mandolin too and all that stuff sounds great together you guys alright hey uh, let's um, let these guys take a break and go have a smoke or something and I'm going to talk about some upcoming guests and I also have there's big news. I'm sort of going to change the whole... I don't have time for space weather. I don't have time for most of the news because of the news, in my world at least. And uh, I'll tell you all about that in just a minute. But it has to do with one of my favorite topics. The mushroom. <laughs> all right. All right. So uh, uh, coming up next week... Well, tonight, like I said, Elena Tenetti Vladimirova. I have to say Vladimirova over and over again so I get it right when she's on the air. Okay, Elena Tenetti Vladimirova. It's a beautiful name, actually. She's a beautiful woman, and she's doing amazing work. And you can get a leg up on others by hopping on the web. Go to MikeHagan.com, scroll down a little bit, and click on Elena's name. You'll see it plastered there out in front of uh, everyone else on the website. And we're going to talk to her in about a half an hour, okay? But between now and then, I've got some other things I want to do. Uh, next week, 
what's it, the 24th, Marco Roden will be back on the program. We'll be talking to Marco about the mathematics that are blowing everybody's mind uh, that he has unleashed and unveiled uh, to the rest of the planet. So uh, if you missed the first program with Marco Roden, uh, he's an absolute super genius. He's a mathematical genius. Everybody recognizes this, including uh, people like Russell Morris, who was the, uh, the chief research engineer at Microsoft for 12 or 15 years, Bill Gates' right-hand man, uh, basically has bowed at the feet of Marco Roden and said, you know, I'm basically going to pursue uh, the implications of your work for the rest of my life. <laughs> and he wrote it. He basically wrote that down, so I'm not making it up. So anyway, Marco Roden is outrageous, and uh, uh, who knows what is coming from his work, all right? That's next week. Uh, but it requires clarification. That's the problem with this stuff. It's so, uh, well, sometimes it's simple, but it's also complicated. So we have to try to put it into terms where people can understand. And this is the big challenge. You know, uh, I'm reminded of William Blake, who said, and I paraphrase, but it was something like, if the truth can be delivered in such a manner as so it can be understood... It will be believed, you know. So it's a matter of language and making things understandable to people. People recognize truth when they hear it and they can understand it and they can see it. So uh, this is what we try to do with guys like Marco Roden. We try to clarify, clarify, clarify so that it becomes uh, something that we can all uh, manage more easily. For a guy like him, it comes simple. And that's what's hard, because it's hard to translate it uh, to folks who don't uh, have the, you know, the capacity in mathematics that he has. So, uh, which doesn't mean that he uh, doesn't have you know, disabilities in other areas. <laughs> you know, we all do. We all have our good sides, our positive points, and our negative ones. But, uh, but anyway, Marco Roden is an absolute genius, and we're going to talk with him about the Roden coil the rodent torus, the energy implications, which are huge, and uh, all kinds of other things that are uh, related to his work. So Marco Roden, next week on the 24th, okay? Uh, July 31st, Christopher Dunn. I can't wait to talk to Chris Dunn, uh, the amazing author of Giza Power Plant, an engineer of great skill, but also a machinist, a guy who works with milling machines and lathes and knows how to cut stone and can look at stone that's been cut a long time ago and tell you what was involved uh, to make it so. And his work is uh, uh, amazing and astonishing as well. So Christopher Dunn on July 31st will talk about Giza, and I'm sure we'll talk about some of the other monuments around this planet uh, in South America, in Cambodia, in China, in Europe. Now we're finding uh, this amazing pyramid structure in Bosnia. And, uh, you know... History is much more interesting than most people have been told. So, uh, anyway, Chris Dunn's going to tell us a little bit about that on July 31st. Alan Goldstein coming back. we got the birthday party, Radio Orbit, going to be two years old uh, on the 14th of August. Uh, we'll have that party. It's two weeks from today, is it? No, a month from today, I don't know, three weeks, whatever it is. If you're a listener to the program, you want to come down to the station and hang out, you're welcome. Okay, Anybody who wants to stand next to me, come on down. I'd love to meet you and say hi. All right, Jay Widener, my friend, uh, I just received his new video documentary, 2012, The Odyssey. 
and I am absolutely thrilled to get it. I can't wait to see it. I haven't seen it yet. Um, but I also spoke with John Major Jenkins last week, and we're all excited to get some more of this stuff talked about on the air. So certainly Jay Widener back soon. John Major Jenkins back soon, certainly. And um, I can't wait to talk with them and share it with you guys. All right. All right, Daniel Pinchbeck also coming up. I've had his book for a while now, and I've heard from his publicist, but it's just a matter of getting it, uh, the schedule worked out. Cat Harrison, of course, the wonderful Cat Harrison. Dennis, I've got plenty of news about Dennis. More about that in a minute here. Uh, let's see, what else? Joanna. I haven't said much about Joanna Harcourt-Smith, um, but I'm reminded of Tim Leary uh, today. And, of course, when I'm reminded of Timothy, I'm reminded of Joanna and uh, I love you. She's my partner in Future Primitive. I don't say much about it on the air on this program because it's not associated with KOPN. Uh, but uh, futureprimitive.org is another project of mine, and I'm privileged to work with Joanna Harcourt-Smith on that project. And the reason I thought of uh, this today was because of John. And Joanna's partner in another project called metahistory.org is a guy whose name is John Lash. And John is about to release another stunner that's called Not in His Image. And it's a brilliant book, and it's an opus, and I can't wait for other people to share it and read it. Um, but the first chapter of the book is about Hypatia, the story of Hypatia. So um, I think that uh, Brian Trent and John Lash should know one another. And uh, I'm going to make that introduction sometime soon. But anyway, that's why I was thinking about them. And I love you all for the work that you're doing, okay? Okay. Um, the big news is that last Tuesday... So here you have it. Okay, I'll just jump right in. And let me get up my website here. But last Tuesday, there was a study that was released and a press release that, that was uh, uh, sent out from... Johns Hopkins University, the medical school of Johns Hopkins, and it had to do with psilocybin. And most of you familiar with this program know that psilocybin is the active compound in magic mushrooms. Uh, you know, that's just sort of the colloquial term for them. The, the, uh, the real words are Strophaeria cubensis. That's the species that we're talking about. And psilocybin is a chemical compound uh, that's actually designated 4-phosphoroxy-NN-dimethyltryptamine. And I say the words because it's important for people to actually know what these things stand for. And anyway, 4-phosphoroxy-NN-dimethyltryptamine is quite a fancy uh, substance, even though it's very simple, actually, uh, from an atomic standpoint. It's not a very complicated or heavy molecule. It's very simple. But when it does, when it enters the human nervous system and uh, moves through the blood-brain barrier into the human brain, well, uh, things get really interesting. And the scientists at Johns Hopkins University were allowed to show this for the first time in 40 years. And it's now coming back into the, uh, into the public consciousness the, the power and the potential behind some of these botanical, natural psychedelics. And I'm going to talk about it a little bit more in a few minutes. But uh, I would have gotten Dennis to chime in, but he's in Peru. And he won't be back until tomorrow. And, uh, but his partner and the co-founder of the Hefter Research Institute, another wonderful doctor 
by the name of Dave Nichols, who was actually the scientist that synthesized the psilocybin for the, uh, for the study at Johns Hopkins. Uh, I was able to speak with him today, and I'm going to play a, uh, a short interview with, uh, with Dave. And um, uh, I also spoke with Richard Glenn Boyer, uh, the director of the Center for Cognitive Liberty and Ethics. And Richard's been on the program before with Dennis McKenna. And if you missed that one, check it out. It's on the web, okay? Um, but it's important stuff. And uh, I'm looking at the clock, and I'm sort of, mm, you know, questioning what I have to do for time. But I'm just going to get on with it here, okay? So Dave Nichols, Dr. Dave Nichols, he's a, um, a professor at Purdue University. I'll let him explain a little bit more about himself in his own words here. And... Uh, and then I'll be back in just about five minutes. We'll have a little bit more music coming up. We've got Elena Tanetti, Vladimirova coming up, lots of stuff. And uh, just stick around. The next 20 minutes are going to be sort of packed, all right? But it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. And this is Dr. Dave Nichols from the Hefter Research Institute and also from uh, Purdue University. Okay, check it out. Listen in. Hi, everybody. It's Mike again. You're listening to Radio Orbit, and we've had a couple interesting things happen uh, this afternoon that we're bringing to you this evening. Uh, my next guest, just for a few minutes, will be Dr. Dave Nichols, and he is a professor of medicinal chemistry and also a professor in the Department of Pharmacology at the School of Pharmacy and uh, Pharmacological Sciences at Purdue University. And Dr. Nichols can correct me if I'm wrong about any of that, but he's an associate of Dr. McKenna, Dr. Dennis McKenna, as well at the Hefter Research Organization. And information about Dr. Dave Nichols can be found on the web uh, at H-E-F-F-T-E-R, Hefter.org. So without further delay, we will say hello to Dr. Dave Nichols and thank him for spending a little bit of his time on a Monday afternoon to talk about the psilocybin study that uh, came out of Johns Hopkins just last week and has made quite a bit of uh, a ripple in, uh, in the community. Hi, Dr. Nichols. Hi, Mike. Thanks a whole lot for taking a little time with us here. Pleasure. Well, uh, you're right in the middle of this amazing story that's uh, been circulating for about a week now. And for those who aren't particularly familiar, uh, maybe you could tell a little bit about the study and what your role in it was, Dr. Nichols. Well, I heard of the study some years ago when I was contacted by uh, one of the, the study's supporters and was asked whether would be possible for me to provide some psilocybin that would meet FDA standards for a study they were planning. I really didn't know too much about the study other than that it was uh, an attempt to sort of extend the findings that had been, that had resulted from the Walter Pankey Good Friday experiment back in the 1960s. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, psilocybin is a, is a compound that actually can be synthesized in the lab? Yes, it originally was isolated from psilocybin mushrooms by Albert Hoffman working at Sandoz. Um, but you can make it synthetically. It's a little bit tedious, but uh, most of the problems have been overcome, so you can make it on a fairly large scale if you need it. And that was your role in this particular study? We had, yes, we had actually some time ago wanted to improve the synthetic procedure for making psilocybin because it was my belief that this might be one of the most useful psychedelics to do research on. It didn't have a bad name, and if we could make it and, and, and find a way to get it pretty easily, that it would sort of facilitate clinical research with, with one of these substances. Hmm, very interesting. Okay, so they did the study, and it uh, involved 36 individuals that were 
uh, given the substance and placebo and lots of different things, double-blind studies, the whole bit. But the results were pretty remarkable, and there have been a whole lot of people talking about it for the last week and a half. And as they say in the news biz, the story sort of has legs. And I was looking again this morning, and it's just all over the place. And I guess I'd like to know what your opinion is on the implications of what it means. Well, in the world of pharmacology and, and drugs, there have been no substances that didn't have their place in, in legitimate medicine. Even if you look at morphine-type derivatives and heroin or cocaine, they all have a medical application. Mm -hmm. The psychedelics have, as a class, been pretty much uh, outcast. There's been no recognition by the mainstream uh, media or, or even uh, medical people that these drugs had any value at all. And, and the really interesting thing here is that after all these years, of these drugs being sort of disparaged and, and called just drugs of abuse. And now we have a really well-designed study that says, well, these things can be used safely and some pretty remarkable things can occur in some people when they take them. Yeah, it is really interesting because, to my knowledge, I can't think of other substances that were not only taken off the table for individuals to uh, partake in or experiment with, but also taken off the table for science. I mean, uh, scientists like yourself for a long, long time have not been able to touch these things, at least uh, not without a whole lot of trouble. Yeah, my research with rats and enzyme preparations, etc., I haven't really encountered those obstacles. What really was stopped is clinical research. Mm. And uh, you can't, you really can't do research on these types of substances with rats. Rats just, they can tell you, why, you know, Essentially, they can say, I think you gave me a, a psychedelic, but what does that really mean? Right. When we know that the descriptions of these experiences by humans are so rich and uh, just full of detail and variety, you can't get that with animals. And mm -hmm. So the really big mm -hmm. problem is that we haven't been able to actually look at them in humans, which is where they have their unique effects. They're pretty much unlike any other class of substance. Well, uh, it sounds to me like it was a pretty big deal, and uh, I'm, I'm really glad to see that the work... Uh, was done and that it was done in such a rigorous fashion and that you guys were so tight about uh, the results and everything until you were ready to release it. Uh, I just think it's a fascinating thing and I hope, I hope more of it continues. What do you see for the future? Well, I really hope that this will encourage other clinicians to move in this field. I mean, the Griffiths, Roland Griffiths has demonstrated that you can do clinical studies with these. There have been a couple of others, but this, of course, is the most well-designed and, and most uh, comprehensive and sophisticated one. So, there are a lot of people out there who I've spoken with over the years that say, I'd like to work with these and research them, but you can't use them. Hmm. And Roland has really shown that you can use them. It has to be a well-done study. You have to jump through the hoops. But I'd really like to see more clinical research so we can find out once and for all what these substances may be good for. All right. Well, look, Dr. Nichols, uh, we won't take any more of your time. I thank you for what you did spend with us here and for the wonderful work that you guys are doing there at Hefter. I know it's uh, been an uphill struggle for a long, long time, but I think there's some breakthroughs coming through apparently, and, and, and you guys have been a big part of it. So thanks so much for your work. It's and, a pleasure. And, uh, yeah, we wish you the best. And we'll be talking to Dennis, uh, as we always do in the future, and I'm sure he'll keep us up to date with what's happening over there. Thanks very much. Thanks, Dr. Nichols. Take care of yourself, everybody. Uh, that was Dr. Dave Nichols, and you can find out information on the web about the work that all these wonderful people are doing at www.hefter.org. That's right. Okay, so uh, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's quarter to uh, quarter to midnight. All right, we're almost at the top of the hour, so I want to uh, squeeze some things in here. Okay, uh, that's what we're doing. The, the time sort of got away from us, all right? So that is Dave Nichols, the guy who synthesized the psilocybin for the 
uh, amazing study that just came out of Johns Hopkins last Tuesday, okay? I also wanted to get Richard Glenn Boyer's take on it. I wanted to get an idea for the legal implications of that study. So I spoke with, uh, with Richard this afternoon as well, and I'm going to share that with you right here. We have um, uh, Elena Tenetti Vladimirova, a wonderful woman who's uh, going to be joining us in about 15 minutes at the top of the hour. She's doing amazing work. I'll tell you more about her in just a few minutes. Uh, but uh, for now, Richard Glenn Boyer, the director of the Center for Cognitive Liberty and Ethics, and uh, another amazing uh, guy doing great work, okay? So uh, back in just a minute, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. And I apologize if we change the format, uh, the format a little bit uh, this week, but there's just a lot going on, okay? All right, here you go. His name is Richard Glenn Boyer. He serves as the Center for Cognitive Liberty and Ethics Senior Fellow in Law and Policy. He is also a director for that organization. He's been on the program before, on May Day, as a matter of fact, with Dr. Dennis McKenna. Among other things, he has been admitted to practice in the United States Supreme Court, and he's filed the first ever Freedom of Thought Brief before the Supreme Court in 2002. He's an extremely interesting man, and he's doing very important work, and I appreciate the fact that he's going to share a little bit of time with us this afternoon. So without further delay, thank you, Richard Glenn Boyer, for uh, taking the time out. Hey, Mike. Thanks for calling. I'm happy to be here. All right. Well, look, uh, the reason I got a hold of you was because last week there was a pretty interesting study that came out of Johns Hopkins, uh, the pharmacology medicine division or department, and I've talked to a number of people over the last week about what they thought uh, about the implications of it, because to me it wasn't just another study. I thought it had uh, uh, some pretty relevant implications, and I thought that the story also had legs because it's all over the place, and it still is, uh, as I look on the news uh, searches on Google, for example, today. So anyway, Richard, uh, you have a unique perspective, and you're doing really important work with regard to this sort of stuff, the, le- uh, the legal side of these substances. So I thought I'd ask you what you think about the psilocybin study. Well, I think it's, it's, it is indeed a big development uh, in, the, in the world of the, the courts. Um, I think it could actually have a, a fairly significant impact. It's, it's essentially what we've got now is Western science acknowledging, documenting, and recognizing something that uh, many people have been saying for, for a long, long time. And that's exactly what we need when you go into court and try and present evidence to uh, in a system that is evidence-based. And so with this study, I think that there's a potential that um, something like the, the case that we saw decided earlier this year that involved the UDV and its use of ayahuasca, that, that this, this study may make it possible to begin to um, kind of build upon the base of that case and establish perhaps um, the, the religious use of mm. mushrooms as a protected um, religion under, under this Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So I think that the bottom line is that there's one more piece of, of very strong evidence and like I said, this has been evident. There, most people who really study this have known this to be true for right. as long as they've looked into it. But right, right. this finally makes this something recognizable by the courts. And I don't know how far it will take us. It may not take us all the way to having a case that's a winning mushroom religious defense case, but it definitely takes us one much bigger step in that direction. So I think the implications of this study are, could be very significant in terms of, of legal um, the way the legal system addresses this issue, which has always been an area that 
the law has had a very, very hard time grappling with. One other thing, if I can just continue on that. Please, is that please. The, one of the things that the courts have done when they look at religious um, entheogen cases is they have, when they want to rule against the, the religious user, they say that, that their use of this or that entheogen is not actually religious, but instead is just a personal philosophy, that the person likes to get high on marijuana or, or mushrooms in the past, and that that's not really what's called a religion. It's a philosophy, and philosophies are not re- protected as religions. Mm. So this study really puts that, I think, to rest by showing that in the eyes of people who know what they're talking about and have studied religions and, and these mystic states, that this does, in fact, qualify as a quote-unquote religion. And that's another big step to getting the courts to, to change the way they've viewed these and dealt with these entheogen issues in the past. All right, fascinating stuff. All right, well, Richard, it, it seems like, in your opinion, that it is a, a relatively big thing now. Yeah, I think so. The, the, you know, it's always questionable when you start to take science into the courtroom, how the, how the court and the law will deal with it. But, but at least we've got something to take into the right, court now. Right. In the past, it's been really um, assertions of, of um, sort of social scientists that mm-hmm. this is a religious experience or mm-hmm. anthropologists. Mm-hmm. And now I think we can walk in with something that's perhaps going to be somewhat more persuasive to um, ultimately an appellate court, which is where these things finally end up. So I do. I think it's a, it's a it's a real big step in the right direction, and I'm looking forward to seeing if anybody's going to be able to take that step in the near future. All right. Well, look, Richard. I know you're a busy man, and uh, I thank you very much for sort of uh, doing this sort of under the gun and uh, with very short notice. So thanks as always. You're doing great work, and I appreciate it. And you're a really interesting fellow as well. So uh, continue it, and my best to you and everybody there at Cognitive Liberty. And you can find out more information about Richard and the wonderful work that they're doing at the Center for Cognitive Liberty and Ethics on the web at www.cognitiveliberty.org. Great, Mike, and thanks for, thanks for inviting me to be on any time. All right, Richard, take care of yourself, and I know Dennis sends his best as well. Great. Thanks, Mike. All right, take care. Bye. All right, there you go. Uh, so Richard Glenn Boyer, again, from the Center for Cognitive Liberty and Ethics, doing wonderful work, and um, Dr. Dave Nichols before that, the guy right in the middle of this uh, uh, psilocybin study that came out of uh, that came out of Johns Hopkins last week. All right, so here's the deal, though, all right? This is, I'm going to give you my thoughts here real quick. We've got a few minutes, and we're going to play another song from uh, the guys uh, from Coffee Done the Magic before we go to, t- uh, to Elena at the top of the hour. But, you know, I know Dennis, and I knew Terrence McKenna, and I'm familiar with the substance, psilocybin. I'm familiar with it uh, because I have a relationship with the plant or the organism that it comes from. And uh, my thoughts on this is that science reports and concentrates on uh, is part of the picture, but it's not the whole story. And this study, as most, um, it simply assesses the chemical compound and the effect of the person, the the effect on the person who ingests it. Okay, Uh, there's no mention here of the intelligence of the organism from which. The compound comes. And this is why I'm not a fan of synthetics, uh, whether it's synthetic psilocybin or, or otherwise. But uh, it doesn't mean that the people doing the studies don't understand this. Uh, trust me, Dennis McKenna uh, understands this. 
but it's just too controversial to bring it up if you're looking to move something of this nature forward. I mean, these guys have to be so careful. This stuff has been in the closet for over 40 years. And they're opening a box that was sealed, you know, really tightly back then. But it is a box whose time has come. And I want to take just one more quick minute and talk about the idea of symbiosis and these interspecies relationships that have been lost and uh, disempowered for so long. All right? Because what they don't tell you about the mushroom is this, is that it's more than just a chemical soup. It is a living intelligence. It is frantic to communicate with us and to enter into, in, into a noetic dialogue with those who are willing. Uh, the key to this thing is not mentioned. It's symbiosis. All right? Symbiosis. It means two organisms somehow working together. There are different ways. Parasitism. Parasitism is a, a, uh, actually a, a form of symbiosis where a, a parasite, uh, this is a, a one-sided symbiosis, of course. The one I'm interested in is called uh, mutualism. Mutualism means both sides get benefit, right? And there's a wonderful example. There's a bunch of them, but my favorite is the clownfish. There's this wonderful clownfish that uh, we all see in the Disney cartoons, but the clownfish has, an, has, a, has a relationship with this particular anemone, and it's immune to the, to the, um, the venom of the anemone. It creates an immunity as it gets older, and it can live within this other animal. And the anemone provides a safe place for the clownfish to live and to raise its young, and it uh, brings food its way. And in the same way, the clownfish uh, uh, stirs up the, the water and creates a, an environment that's not stagnant. It brings food as well to the, uh, to the anemone. And they work things out pretty well together. Now, the interesting thing is, and I have dove on the Great Barrier Reef uh, in, in Australia, and I've seen things like this with my own eyes. And what happens is when the coral, which supports the anemone, dies and you have bleaching or something like that occurs because of ocean warming, well, the anemone goes away. The clownfish doesn't go away. The clownfish lives, but it doesn't grow to be as strong. It doesn't live as long. It has a much more difficult life because there are predators uh, that are chasing it around every corner, and it does not have the safe place that the anemone provides for it. All right? Our lives are the same. And, uh, you know, the mushroom is a symbiote for us. It has been for millions of years. It's something that's trying to reawaken itself. And, uh, but it's a two-way street. It is a relationship. And your experience depends to a great degree uh, and very directly upon what you bring to the table. Uh, the, the rules of appropriate human behavior sort of apply. Uh, if, you know, if you're nice and introduce yourself and come in with a nice attitude, you will probably come out of that experience with a with a smile and and maybe with something that helps you and you can benefit yourself and others you know if you go in with a giant ego and uh, an attitude of arrogance well it will grab you by the short and curly and throw you against the wall and tell you to come back another time and it's about building relationships just like human relationships right we have to get over this idea that we can only have relationships with other human beings we have relationships with plants with animals with the planet, and uh, the mushroom is one of these entities that's saying, hey, they're waving a flag, right? And, you know, people think I'm nuts, you know, 
they say that why in the hell would a mushroom have anything to say you know, to us? Or why would it want to if it did? Well, one reason is because we are destroying and toxifying and ruining and raping its world. So it has plenty to talk with us about. And all of history can be seen as a series of made and broken relationships between humans and plants. Coffee, sugar, tobacco, opium, cannabis, coca, all the, all the plants that produce alcohol, corn, wheat. Our lives are based on vegetables. And uh, it's time that we recognize this thing. And there is intelligence all around us. And much of it is really trying to talk to us because they have their own concerns. And they also have things to share with us if we're open to it. So, yeah, the mushroom is a species that offers a much more pleasant possibility, perhaps, uh, of a future. Through a renewed symbiotic relationship with us, they are powerful allies. The plants are powerful allies. And they want to partner with those of us who recognize their potential. Uh, they are not drugs. They are no more drugs than serotonin is a drug. They're neurotransmitters. The mycelial networks on this planet are the biggest brains on it. Pay attention to the mushroom. All right, let's have another song from my friends, Caulfield and the Magic. And then we'll come back in just a minute with uh, Elena, Tanetti, Vladimirova. And I'll get off the stage for a few and let somebody else have it. All right, it's Mike. You've been listening to Radio Orbit. And uh, I thank the guys from Caulfield uh, uh, for coming in. What are you going to play for us, Case? Uh, we're going to play another little bluegrass one. Okay. All right. Well, thanks. And um, we've got uh, another. C- I got a CD from these guys that we're going to feature for the rest of the night. And um, we'll have Elaine in a couple minutes. In the meantime, it's Mike Radio Orbit KOPN Columbia, eighty-nine point five FM. Go ahead, you guys. I love it.
So much, you guys. Thank you. Thank you. All right, wonderful stuff. Uh, one more time, Joel and Math. Math. <laughs> <laughs> Matt. I was gonna say Matthew and Matt. So anyway, Joel, Matt, Casey, Michael over here. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. And uh, run around town and get outside, see live music, find out who these guys are. Wednesday. Yeah. Okay. When's yeah, the next? Playing a show Wednesday down at the Blue Fugue. Okay. All right. Anybody? Anybody playing with you? Or? Yeah, we got. Um, yeah, come on, Natalie, Barnell, uh-huh, uh-huh. and uh, the Elusive Parallelograms. This is kind of a coming <laughs> together of old friends. There you go, good. Kind of uh, three of the bands, uh, or two of the other bands have uh, graduate high, graduated high school with the guys, and then the other band, you know, we used to play together. So right, it's kind right, of, right. It's kind of a, 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 going to be a fun show for us. All right, well, cool. Everybody get down there and check it out. There's lots of, I like, I like I'm broken record, no pun intended, but there's lots of great stuff going on around town, so uh, get out there and see it. These guys are among it. Yeah, 9.30 Wednesday, the Blue Fugue. All right, right on. Wednesday at the Blue Fugue, and thanks. Okay, you guys? Thank you, Mike. You know, I'll see you around. All right, everybody, let's uh, switch gears here, okay? And I'll be back in just one moment because I have to do this cool thing that Jeff and William did for me. Back in just a minute with Elena Tinetti Vladimirova. Just a moment, it's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. This is Jeff of the musical group Yachai. You have entered into a world of myth and magic, of light and dark, a realm where the heroes quest for the multi-faceted gem of eternal truth is ever present. Welcome to Radio Orbit with Mike Higgins. All right, that's right. Thank you to my friends, Jeff and William from Yachai. As I mentioned earlier, if you're interested in their music, it's fantastic. You can download their CD for free. Just run over to my website and let me know who you are, if you're not afraid of me. Okay, her name is Elena Tinetti Vladimirova. If you're interested in seeing children birthed without trauma, she is a woman with a lot of information to share with you. All right, She was born in Russia. She was raised in Russia. She worked there for many years. She lives now in the United States. Her work is focused primarily on mental and spiritual clarity and basically helping people uh, with themselves and with their children and bringing children into the world in a, uh, in a really nice manner. So her approach, as she is very clear to point out, may not work for everyone, but if you have the will and a capacity to make a, a commitment within yourself, uh, she is someone who can really help you. And her work has been recognized by, like Michelle O'Donnell, for example. Let me just tell you what Michelle, Dr. Michelle O'Donnell said about Elena, and then we'll get right to her. Uh, she requires no more introduction. We must pay tribute to Elena for prompting us to re- re-examine basic features of human nature. Her film, which by the way is called Birth As We Know It, At any rate, uh, Michelle O'Don is speaking about this particular DVD called Birth As We Know It, and he says, We must pay tribute to Elena for prompting us to re-examine basic features of human nature. Her film explains why millions of women all over the world dream of giving birth in the sea among dolphins. So, without further delay, it's my great pleasure and privilege to welcome 
Elena Tinetti Vladimirova. Welcome to Radio Orbit. Thank you so much. Hi. The pleasure is mine. All right. So, Elena, um, you're in California. Is that right right now? Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's, what, 10 o'clock your time? Yeah, it's 10 o'clock my time. All right. 10 o'clock your time. So thank you for staying up a little bit late on a Monday night to uh, share some of your uh, wonderful words and wisdom and ideas and information with my uh, myself and my audience. Okay, well listen, um, I'm going to ask you first of all, you have such a soft voice, I'm going to ask you to sort of snuggle up to your phone a little bit better so I can get a, a little bit of a better signal from you. And Is then that's all right? That's much better. Okay, great. Okay, and um, okay, let's start off with the website. It's birthintobeing.com. And uh, Elena... Where did you come from? And uh, tell us a little bit about you, because I saw your video. You were kind enough to send it to me, your own personal copy, uh, that I was able to watch and then send back to you. But I was blown away. My wife was blown away, uh, who's seven and a half months pregnant, by the way. Congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, as I find out, lots of people who are... Uh, familiar with your work and are getting familiar with you are very pleased about it. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where'd you come from and how'd you get on this uh, particular track? Hmm. Well, I was born in the middle of Russia, um, Ural Mountains, and graduated from the College of Arts. That's my only formal education. I was trained to be a theater um, in my first year after graduation, I walked into Igor Cherkovsky, a man who pioneered the water birth idea, and he was struggling with trying to convert some women to, to try to do what he was <laughs> preaching. And uh, it, it was difficult. How do you convince the first woman to give birth? Her child in the water. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, because there was there was a tremendous uh, amount of pressure from the medical community that the sort of traditional traditional Western medicine that that would be really uh, something that was not ad- well advised, right? Right, and he is not a doctor. Um, if you think about it, uh, what well-meaning doctor would place a woman in in the water? <laughs> it's um, he was a swimming instructor, and uh, his daughter was born prematurely. As a swimming instructor, he knew how much easier it is for the body to be in the water, how much more energy is being saved mm. by not having to deal with gravity. So when doctors gave him his little baby into his hands, giving up on her, he took her home to die basically Hmm. but at home he placed her in a little tab and kept her there 24 hours there was always somebody to hold her head above the water and uh, a week later she was still alive and actually was doing better and better and better Hmm. and she lived in the water until she was strong enough to be removed out of the water by the age of 11, she was all Russian champion and swimming. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this is completely, I mean, nobody could believe it, right? Yeah. Well, uh, the next step was logically for him. 
he was trying to see what else could be done. <laughs> He's very creative, very inventive. L- and l- let's mention his name one more time for the people who didn't get it the first time. Igor Cherkovsky. Okay, all right. And um, somehow he thought of this next step, is to give birth to a baby in the water, um, looking at the egg yolk that fell into a glass of water and stayed around. He realized that the baby's head uh, coming out of the womb is entering the gravity that maybe at the first introduction is not a very nice sensation. So he's very empathic. And watching this, he suddenly, it was a a very sudden, you know, one moment he didn't know that and one moment he knew that. So that was that moment when (laughs) Agyok fell into the glass of water and suddenly realized that when the baby's head would enter into this world, into the water, Mm -hmm. it would sort of create a buffer zone for the the brain, for the little head, to unfold and adjust and and proceed with um, in earthly gravity. Because the baby is basically coming out of a water environment anyway. Yeah. Right? Huh, fascinating. Okay, so um, so at the time, you were an actress? Yeah, <laughs> well, uh, part-time. And part-time, I was helping my husband, who was doing a fascinating work. Uh, he called it games, but it was uh, um, a very serious business. Uh-huh. He was working with large organizations, um, in the form of sort of games, promoting um, some kind of brainstorming environment. There was not one organization in Russia that did not need some kind of brainstorming huh. um, situation at the time, or at any time. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, how about today, huh? Yeah, yeah. and um, he was um, doing those business games with large organization. One game lasts uh, a whole week. And it takes about two to three hundred people. And uh, he had a whole team of game technicians, as he called them. And I was one of them. So I was between my stage life and facilitating those games. Hmm. Amazing. Um, Yeah. So somebody um, asked me to meet with that man, Igor Cherkovsky, and see what I can do to organize his uh, space for him uh-huh. because he was um, bringing some really interesting, innovative ideas and didn't really have the organizing energy to move through. So I met with him and we talked for four hours. He explained the, the concept and everything, and by the end of four hours, uh-huh. I was completely converted <laughs> and convinced that uh, that's the way to do it. It, it was very clear to me that the implications that our birthing experience has on our future life mm. uh, is enormous and un- un- unprecedented. There is really 
not that many events in our life that have that much impact mm-hmm. on the way we perceive life, ourselves, world, uh, uh, than birth. And he basically explained to me the whole concept, um, and it was, you know, very authentic. It was his own. He never heard of prenatal psychology. Um, you know, at that time, there was n- no information available in Russia in within the Iron Curtain. It was all his ideas, his visionary capacity to perceive the connection and he's a very complex man he is not uh, he's not something that you can give a label to mm. <laughs> and define him he's, uh, um, and he's still with us Elena yeah he is in his early 70s he lives in Moscow in fact I actually talked to him this morning amazing how wonderful yeah I asked him to and give us give give myself and the listeners an idea of time frame when you, when you were first introduced to him it was 82 1982 okay so 24 years ago mm-hmm. amazing yeah okay, and okay. Um, it was the end of my acting career because <laughs> I couldn't uh, it, uh, I had to choose. There is only 24 hours in a day, uh, and I, I wholeheartedly leaped into supporting the, the work uh-huh. of him because at that time he and the work was the same thing. Um, later on, uh, as he was developing his other. Uh, aspects of his work it was getting more and more separated and defined but in the beginning he was the carrier of the idea and the transmission well it is a fascinating topic and um, it's amazing the way that you were introduced to it I mean uh, the, the synchronicity just at the beginning is a wonderful story so yeah we became good friends and we still are He is not a very conventional person. When he was staying with me here in America, um, every time he was staying with me four weeks Uh in my house, and every time he would go for a walk, a police car would (laughs) escort him back to my... Why? (laughs) Because he looks like a crazy man. He he walks differently. He looks differently. Good for him. He's uh, very socially and inappropriate in every way, and that is very upsetting for a lot of people. And it was upsetting for me many times, <laughs> and, and we had our share of mm. conflict. But at the end of the day, we love each other very much. All right, and he certainly. And is. I don't stand by all his practices because sometimes he is extreme. And I refuse to go where he goes, uh-huh, and uh-huh. he is upset with me that I um, don't understand him and right. don't support him. But well, he's obviously a wonderful teacher, and he's and he's helped you to become one too. I think so. Um, yes. So good for both of you. Right? Absolutely, I'm eternal and grateful. Wonderful. All right. Well, okay. So the story is that 
you discovered with his help that birthing children in water was really uh, a, a, a beneficial thing and something that needed to be looked at and studied and more people needed to be uh, introduced to that, uh, the ideas. So what happens after you sort of get the kickstart there? Well, by the mid-80s or late-80s, it was already a whole movement in Moscow and in Russia. So in Russia. Now, was was there a corresponding movement or anything that was happening over here at the time, or, or was it really sort of pioneered there? Well, we had no way of knowing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We were just doing our, our work. It was the time in Russia when even talking with with a foreigner on the street could cause Russian citizen a loss of job or freedom. Uh-huh. <laughs> it, uh, um, there was not much exchange going on. It was a very different country hmm. a few years ago. Right, yeah, it wasn't that long ago. I actually, I actually was, uh, was living in, in Germany in 1989 and 1990, mm-hmm. and I spent uh, you know, those sort of wild years after the wall came down in southern Germany and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, was really familiar with the, the social and political dynamic that was happening at the time. And I've spent time in Czechoslovakia, and I've been to Yugoslavia and to a number of uh, places that were you know, formerly considered you know, behind the Iron Curtain or mm-hmm. whatever, but um, uh, it it's amazing what has happened in a short, in a relatively short period of time. You know. Yeah, it it was mind-boggling. I actually, that's how I got stranded in America. <laughs> yeah, it is I, a stranding of sorts, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I came here for vacation in '89 <laughs> um, at the invitation of uh, one of the. Um, American scientist that I was helping in Moscow uh-huh. and uh, as soon as I left in about two weeks the whole country fell apart I suddenly didn't have a country to go back to <laughs> and my mother was um, telling me please stay back until it will be clear that they're not going to oh. start shooting each other right. and uh, everyone was expecting civil war and yeah, it and was I... just not Save to go back. Yeah, and I'm not. I'm not laughing out of humor. I'm, I laugh when I get nervous sometimes because I remember how tense it was and how everyone was just on the edge of their seat, saying, "What is going to happen here?" You know, because nobody. I mean, there really was no one in control of it, certainly, and uh, it was just amazing to watch it unfold. Yeah, it could go either way very easily, and. In Russian history, it happened many times already. As soon as the new mm-hmm. uh, power comes in, they just close the borders and shoot everybody who've been abroad so mm-hmm. they don't have a way of delivering information what the rest of the world lives mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. And that's why my mother was concerned about me coming back from visiting America, which was in the mentality of Russians. It was an evil empire. I even had my friends when I was uh, getting ready to fly to America. Um, at that time, we didn't know anybody who visited the United States. And they were asking me, aren't you afraid to go there? Right, right, right. Because all we knew was that it's um, the, the, the evil land with casinos and gangsters and uh-huh. prostitutes. And right, right, just, uh, the, just it whatever. It sounded the... very dangerous. 
<laughs> it's yeah, and and the same story over here. In other words, you know, the, the propaganda gets gets thrown out on both sides, and everybody is uh, set up to believe that the other place is frightening and dangerous, and all the people over there want to kill them. And turns out that we're pretty much the same. So yeah, when I came, I remember I was staying with a family with a young boy. He was about eleven, and he looked at me and he said, "What? You look like us." <laughs> I never thought of Russians as of people before. <laughs> huh. Yeah, isn't it something that... Gosh. And it's been just a few years ago, really, on this grand scale of um, human history. Mm-hmm. It's nothing. It really is. It's just a snap. years yeah. ago. Yeah. Absolutely remarkable. All right. Well, uh, for those uh, who are listening and who have never seen Elena, she is beautiful. And... Uh, she has a beautiful name uh, and a beautiful spirit, and uh, her work is something else. And this video is really striking. It's called Birth as We Know It, and you can learn more about Elena on the web at www.birthintobeing.com. And you can also get there directly from my site at mikehagan.com. You can find out uh, more information about Elena there. Okay, um, Elena, let's, let's take a, a little break here, okay? Okay. We'll take a short break and we'll come back and we'll talk um, some more about the video and about you and about babies and uh, consciousness and love and pain and pleasure and ecstasy. <laughs> All these okay, things. Sign right? Me up. <laughs> All right, we'll be back in just a few minutes. It's Mike and uh, I'm fortunate enough to have uh, the wonderful Elena Tenetti Vladimirova on the line with me. We'll come back with her in just a few moments. And in the meantime, let's see, we'll play a song. I'm not even sure what we have here, but it's more music from uh, the guys from Caulfield who are just here. And uh, I just threw a CD in, so whatever this first track is, that's what you're going to hear. All right, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia. It's about 12.25 a.m., now the 18th of July. Can you believe it? And uh, we'll be back in just a minute, Okay.
All right. I don't know what it's called, but I like it. Casey and the guys, coffee and the magic, uh, sort of going their own ways right now, but lots of good stuff coming from Joel and Matt and Casey and Michael. Uh, keep your eyes and ears on them in the future around the Columbia area here. A bunch of young guys that are making good music, okay? All right, it's Mike, and uh, you're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. We're streaming live every Monday night, thanks to the wonderful people at CosmicWavesRadio.com. And I'd like to say a quick hello to the people that are joining us in the chat room today. Uh, of course, my friend Pio. I love you, my friend. Thank you for everything you do. And uh, some new people, Zero Fly, Zorhe. Zorhe sort of shows up under different names every week, but uh, we know who you are. Anyway, it's Mike, and uh, you are listening to Radio Orbit. My guest is Elena Tanetti Vladimirova. She's doing wonderful work, primarily uh, in the field of water birthing. And we're talking about babies and um, things associated with them. So let's get right back to her. Elena, thank you for sticking around. Hi. All right, so um, where were we? We're talking about you and uh, the mid-80s in Russia. And there was a movement that you say that had just uh, begun that was wrapped around this whole idea of, of having children in water. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about the Black Sea. Okay. Um, the idea of going to birth camps um, sort of evolved from the amazing uh, observation that we made after working with pregnant women, preparing them for soft birth uh, at home in their own bathtubs, that almost all of those pregnant women uh, were saying the same thing, that when they go very deep into that silence beneath all the noises and go deep to their own center and focus on the unborn child, they have those images of dolphins. And it was a very interesting observation because in Moscow, dolphins are not part of the Russian mentality. Mm. You, you, you know, talking about dolphins in Hawaii or in California, okay. for that yeah. matter, you know, it's like part of the family, right? But in the middle of the dead winter <laughs> in Russia, right, right. Uh, and none of us, ever even saw dolphins, mm -hmm. never mind, because um, Russian uh, fisheries were actually hunting and killing them for so many years that dolphins were not very uh, trusting of people. Oh, well, so yeah. it, we never knew anybody who ever had an encounter with a dolphin. But there was this amazing, um, amazing one woman after the other during their meditation and preparation for uh, water birth, I was saying this this amazing thing, that they felt the presence of dolphins. And meditation was a big part of the preparation. Um, many different kinds of meditation. And there were many other aspects of preparation. That is what my film is about, mm -hmm. how to prepare yourself emotionally, physically, um, logistically, <laughs> right. uh, for the normal, healthy home birth mm -hmm. without drama, without making it look like somebody 
you know, nobody saw it coming and suddenly, whoops, we have an emergency right. situation and we have to go to the hospital mm-hmm. and extract the baby's body out of the mother's body. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is the, the an option of seeing gestation and birth as part of the natural um, um, manifestation of life. But because a, a, a woman normally gives birth just the way she was born, uh, due to the mechanism of limbic imprint, very few of us actually have that cellular memory mm. about how to do that. Okay. Most of the women actually are very afraid mm. of birth. Right. Okay. And and it has to do with this. You mentioned it in uh, in passing there, but uh, it's a very important concept. It's just, uh, this thing that's called limbic imprinting. Um, I think we certainly need to spend some time on that, Elena. So tell us what limbic imprinting is, and then let's talk about the periods of imprinting. In other words, when can it happen? I mean, I know that uh, we have the idea that it happens postnatal, but I think it's prenatal as well. It's prenatal, and there is a growing body of evidence that imprinting starts happening from the moment of conception, Mm -hmm. and actually even during the conception. Right, and why not? And uh, that's why the whole preparation program starts way before the conception and includes a part that is um, beautifully named conscious conception. Mm-hmm. Um, because there is a lot that a couple can do to prepare themselves for the best possible quality of the, uh, for the moment of conception best quality of the egg and the sperm. Hmm. And uh, um, I talk about it in the film, too. So mm-hmm. <laughs> in the format of this interview, we probably wouldn't be able to cover... Yeah, we won't cover the whole thing. I think it, that, it, that it's just very important, though, for people to recognize that in the womb, and most likely from the moment of conception, that everything that happens... Uh, within that woman's body and her mind uh, affects and, uh, and has is a per- perceived and is perceived is perceived. Yeah, I mean, well, okay. Here's a, here's an interesting question, um, and I've been uh, since they posted it up in the chat page uh, in the chat room here. I've been looking at it, and this is a, a good time to bring it up, I guess, because uh, and and it may or may not be relevant, Elena. You just let me know, okay? But one of the listeners asks if there's anything in your experience that you know that would place significance on the 49th day in the womb, the 49th day of gestation. Um, th- there's, there's some evidence in uh, a book that was put forth by a doctor whose name is Rick Strassman. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, you may or may not be familiar with his work, but it has to do with this particular uh, um, gland, the pineal gland or the pineal gland, and it seems to uh, to do something special on that 49th day, at least according to some ideas. And, and I think there's also some mythological traditions there. I think the Indian Vedas talk about the spirit entering the body on the 49th day, and I think the same thing 
uh, in the Book of the Dead, they talk about the spirit leaving the body 49 days after death or something like that. So anyway, if you have anything to add to that, it might be interesting. Um, no, I don't have a comment for this. I think that uh, that we're living in in the times of changes and challenges, mm-hmm. and whatever stood true for humans, maybe for millennia, um, is shifting and changing. And it could be 49th day, and mm-hmm. it could be any day. I agree with you. I think and uh, every. So I don't think there is one particular day when the soul enters the body. I think some souls are there, you know, before even conception, and some souls are never managed to get into that body. <laughs> and there is a lot of people who um, have their souls, you know, like an umbilical cord, like balloons <laughs> dragging <laughs> beside, uh, uh, by them outside. That that they never actually click in. And uh, the challenge for that kind of situation would be to actually invite the soul back into the body. But some beings have the experience of having the soul from the moment they made a decision to come to this earth. You Mm. know, from wherever they're coming, they might be already connected Mm. to the future body. And... um, I believe that in in this what we so called present mm-hmm. <laughs> as we experience as present mm-hmm. there is really nothing that could be stated as a rule for everyone okay. because uh-huh. we are in in such different places in our own personal evolution and some of us are on our way up and some of us are on our <laughs> way down and it's all um, absolutely um, respectable trajectory that uh-huh. we all are experiencing. All right, fair enough. Okay, thank you for your answer. Um, okay, so imprints. We know now that everything that happens pretty much from day one has a direct effect, is perceived, and then has uh, a lasting effect uh, on the child, on the individual, unless they do some work on themselves, right? Because you also mentioned this idea that your own personal birth trauma is something that has to be dealt with or reconciled with or overcome or whatever uh, before you can successfully move into uh, a fearless situation about having your own children or something like that. Right. That's what it all came down to, that if the woman... Oh, had a very difficult birth um, on a cellular level that's the only thing her body really knows about birth so um, sort of disconnected memory about how to um, procreate um, without a contraction so that frozen structure sort of needs to be softened up and melted down and relaxed Hmm. so a woman can access the innate capacity of her body um, to give birth. And of course there are are, um, situations when um, the medical help and intervention 
surgery are unavoidable because we have a very different um, lifestyle. We have car accidents, sports injuries. Mm-hmm. We have mm-hmm. all kinds of diseases that right. our bodies were not designed to experience, you mm-hmm. know, when, mm-hmm. when our bodies were designed. <laughs> Yeah, no doubt, no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a friend who, who who I interview sometimes. His name is Stephen Buner, and he says people seem to forget that the body was designed to be biodegradable, <laughs> and uh, sometimes things happen that uh, you know you actually need intervention. The and I'm not a big fan of Western medicine, and I actually was in the medical industry here, and and, and I use the words, you know, with with care. It is an industry. Uh, but I was in the medical industry here in this country for four years or so, and I, and I saw way too much uh, and learned way more than I ever wanted to know about it. And I have one soft spot for Western medicine, and it's emergency. Right. Right? Uh, right. Emergency surgery. Okay. That's when there is just no way around it. You right. have to have a knife and slice it open and... <laughs> and um, so it dug up, right. but and it, it works, and people survive. And, and but um, in um, um, central and eastern states, surgical birth is is now in catastrophic proportions. Some um, nurses from the hospitals tell me, I don't know where they got thirty percent C-section in our hospital. It's 60 or 70 or 80. I heard numbers up to 80. And they're done without um, medical um, reason. Mm -hmm. They were just done for convenience. Right. They needed to know when it's going to happen so they can arrange their schedule. Mm -hmm. and, And I think that is happening because women are really not well informed about the side effects for the babies. What happens to the baby's nervous system when the drug, the anesthesia, enters the baby's nervous system? Hmm. It's pretty devastating. I'm sure. I'm sure. And 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 there there are many other things to add to it. So, all right, please continue. Yeah, we have. Uh, lo- actually, let me ask you uh, a question again about personal birth trauma, because this apparently is tied in. In other words, the reason that women, perhaps, are not particularly connected with the damage to the children is because they've been damaged themselves, and we now have a cycle that's gone through how many generations of... Exactly. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, From the time we, as species, were introduced to the... Paradise lost in mm. a sense, when we started killing each other and fighting and uh, being stressed over um, resources, dangers mm-hmm. <laughs> of life and mm. resources, um, we were not able to procreate peacefully. Mm. There are um, reports uh, from travelers. Uh, into the tribes of Amazon that were not exposed to our level of stress and fears um, continuum concept, John um, Leadloff. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, um, Aboriginals in Australia who who were <laughs> who who were able to escape the well, it's not that many left of them, but mm-hmm. still we have the evidence that they procreate peacefully. Mm. That yeah. they never lost the reverence to the environment mm. and to each other, and they s- still procreate as nature um, intended them to. And so we, oh, we for centuries were um, um, sort of labeled as as incapable, we women, I'm Mm. saying, we. (laughs) Yes, I understand. uh, Women. And it was supported not only physically, it was supported culturally uh, through religion, Mm -hmm. through Mm -hmm. uh, tradition, through every possible way. Women were disempowered Mm -hmm. into believing that they can do it And when I came to America, I was actually uh, confronted by a priest who was screaming at me and stomping his feet that, Bible said women should suffer. Who do you think you are? And I was... (laughs) I've had a few priests stomp at me too, so don't worry about it. Right. (laughs) Well, don't worry. I I just realized uh, the scope of the... Um, problem yes. that we're dealing with mm-hmm. if the women are told that they are incapable, if they don't know that to give birth beautifully, all it takes is to claim your power and ground it in in the center of her, her being and recover the innate intelligence of the body and recover the memory about blissful ownership of the body mm. that is free from guilt and shame and um, everything that does not belong in her own psyche. That's right. When the soul is connected to the body and firmly um, rooted in her spiritual, mental, emotional uh, layers, then then giving birth doesn't doesn't seem like a big deal. Well, I tell you what, um for those of you who out there who are listening and you think that Elena is just whistling Dixie, you need to watch with your own eyes and see the the video that she has produced because there are a number of very um uh courageous women uh, Eleven births in that film. Eleven births in this film, all from 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 all different women, right? Or there was twins at one point. Yeah, yeah. One of the births was uh, twins. And one was breached. <laughs> one of them was breached. Yeah, yes. it was outrageous. And their doctor was so aggressive uh, in trying to make them and force them to have C-section, uh-huh. and. They just um, stood their ground and had this beautiful, beautiful experience that I was lucky to 
have in my film. And mm-hmm. uh, 11 births, you know, it's such a small fraction of what really is mm-hmm. going on there. Of course, of course. Because most of the women don't really want to be filmed mm-hmm. because the camera is uh, an extra presence. Oh, yeah, know? yeah, it's a huge and thing. And it's very few women who are willing to have a camera and a cameraman in the birthing field. Yeah, it takes a tremendous amount of courage, and I, I, I applaud all of them, uh, the men and the women uh, who are involved, because um, although the man's role is a little bit, di- well, certainly a lot different, um, but he still has to sort of give to go ahead and be supportive if you know you're gonna have a camera in the room and make sure that you know because if he's not comfortable with it then she's probably not going to be and that creates another uh, obstacle as you mentioned oh absolutely and birthing field is not something to mess with mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. something very very sacred and um, only people uh, who have the capacity to experience the full degree of reverence to that event mm-hmm. should be present at birth. I agree. I think that's beautiful, actually. Yeah. And 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 you uh, you you were able to um, to showcase it in a beautiful way, you know, with your with your with your film. Isn't it beautiful? I'm I'm so happy the way it turned out. Yeah, you should of be course, very proud. it's. Uh, um, my editor, Skylar Sabine, uh-huh. that's, I take my hat off. Uh-huh. It's um, his artistic eye and his perseverance and enormous, enormous um, labor of love that uh-huh. he was able to put this film together. Well, you can tell. It, it, there's a tremendous amount of heart that went into it. You can certainly tell. And um, my wife, for, for example, she loved your logo. She thought that was just the coolest thing. Uh, yeah. And it is very slick and re- very very cleverly designed, I, mu- I must say. So, yeah, you've yeah. done a great job. It's uh, it's worthy uh, of of many people to view it, and I and I hope that professionals are seeing it. You know, um, I have a number of listeners here around town who are who are uh, obstetricians and uh, women doctors actually, uh, who are doing great work around here. There's some there's some wonderful women doctors around here. And um, I'm hoping that some of them are listening tonight. But uh, w- what's the um, response been since you've been uh, sharing this with, with people, Elena? How have you been received? Um, I am so impressed how well <laughs> it's been received. I have such a beautiful feedback um, from all over the world, actually. It went to Europe and Australia and Canada and South America, everywhere, uh, Japan, and, um, many countries in Europe, and their response is a flood of uh, gratitude and appreciation and um, gratitude for what it did for them. Mm-hmm. Many, many women, it it opened their eyes to their own capacity to experience birth as a normal thick thing, mm. not as a sickness. Yeah, a medical and condition or disease, something. Disease, a yeah. medical condition. And many women who actually were heading straight to the hospital watched the film and suddenly knew that they would be able to do it, and they did it. Uh-huh. 
and their husbands delivered their babies, and they were all crying, oh. and yeah, tears of love and joy and, and bliss, and, and it's just the most amazing, amazing, rewarding feeling. Wow. You know what? Received it, <laughs> Elena. I I must tell you that uh, I I'm I'm an acquaintance of Nassim. I've interviewed him. He's, oh wow! He, he's been That's on my pro, he's been on my program, uh, and and he's a brilliant uh, physicist and 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 a, and a great thinker. Uh, and his wife uh, or his partner, I'm not sure how he designate how they designate oh, one another. Both. <laughs> but uh, Amber, mm-hmm. uh, I, I I again I don't know her personally, but I've corresponded via email. Uh, with her, and um, anyway, they're a wonderful couple, and I was sort of uh, speaking with Nassim during that whole period right before Amber was going to have the baby. I did not realize that uh, she was one of the um, women who was uh, who was so uh, amazing in your film and uh, allowed everyone uh, to, to share this amazing experience with uh, with her and her share it with us. Mm. I mean, she was fantastic. It was outrageous. So I love it, and I and and um, the qu- uh, question I ha- I'll, I'll have to ask you this before the top of the hour here. We'll take a break here in a minute, but uh, since the time is right, my my w- of course I I mentioned my wife is pregnant, and and we have sort of an immediate inter- uh, immediate interest in this thing, uh, and I have a, a a long-term interest in it just because I'm so fed up with children being hurt, you know. Uh, but that that covers a whole lot of ground. We could talk about that all night. So. Anyway, my wife's question, and I'm sure many women who see the film will, uh, the question of time is one that I know they always think of how long, you know, in labor, and how long were they actually in the water, for example, in some of these examples that you bring forth in your film. Um, you know, are they getting in the water immediately when labor starts, or is it something that you do at a certain point in labor, or does it all unfold pretty quickly, or or, or is it all different, like you say, with every different person? Right. There is no such thing as uh, average temperature in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Each person has their own scenario okay. because everyone has their own story. Agreed. And... Um, that's why there is no really guidelines about it. At the Black Sea, all the births were very short. It was um, normally it was four or five hours. <laughs> amazing. Most people would say that is our, that's amazing, right? Yeah. Uh, the longest birth that we had was um, eighteen hours from the beginning to the end. Oh. But that was in the film. It's the very first. Birth. Uh-huh, I remember. And um, she was told that she must have C-section because she was um, very petite and the doctor told her that her pelvis floor was too small, that there's no way that baby's hand can come out. And he was just um, um, making her sign all kinds of really scary papers that uh-huh. she is becoming uh, the sole responsible person. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know what strength it took her because she was only 18 at the moment. And um, it was her first child. But the strength that she 
claimed in the process of preparation her her clarity and purity of her intention and understanding that everything will be just absolutely beautiful. And all 18 hours she was in this deep meditation that she didn't even believe that it was 18 hours. <laughs> and of course she was not in the water all 18 hours. Right. And actually um, spending time in the tub during the uh, uh, contractions and labor is not very long. It's just to get in the water to rest and regain composure and sort of accumulate some energy and then get out and do something fun. Mm-hmm. So there is that give and take, that rhythm of complete relaxation in the warm water and allowing the water sort of discharge all the tension from the body mm-hmm. and completely relax. And then getting out and do some crazy aerobic dancing or going up the hill or up the stairs or um, make love, for that matter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> something something intensely juicy and fun. and Something um, that you love. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, grounding in the body and then get back in the water and completely let go and relax. And, and it's an amazing experience going from, the, from this one extreme to the other. Hmm. And, um, and the timing, um, time doesn't really exist in, in those, um, in, in the whole, the whole event normally you would ask anybody who is present, they wouldn't know how long it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I've actually had the experience of, you know, I know lots of women who have had babies, and, and I, you know, I'm comfortable talking with it. I'm very, you know, I'm fascinated. And oftentimes they say, oh gosh, uh, you know, my recollection of it was completely different than uh, other people that were in the room, for example, recalled it. And their experiences are completely their own, it seems. Right. It's um, the hormones that are released into the bloodstream are not your normal soup. It's, <laughs> it's completely different than you. <laughs> right, right, right. So the perception changes. And it's all coming down to perception, you know. When I'm saying that the baby is perceiving the world in the womb, it's not a cognitive perception. It's not something... Um, the the same brain activity as we perceive as we watch a movie or going through our daily lives. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. it's just a com- completely different way of of um, accessing information. Mm-hmm. And uh, the babies that are not traumatized actually get to keep that capacity, mm-hmm. that ability. You wow. have more than one ways of perceiving um, and interacting with the world. Okay. Well, look, we are right at the top of the hour, so we're going to come back and um, uh, and we're going to continue along that line because we we briefly spoke about the Black Sea, and I want to I, I'd like to have you expand a little bit on what was actually happening there and uh, uh, how there were really no doctors involved or that sort of thing. It was really just a bunch of women uh, that decided to get there and, and have a camp, 
uh, of sorts, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, um, it was just a camp, you know, with our tents. Right, it was amazing. And, 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 but the, the video footage of the children in this particular environment is absolutely stunning. And uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about that when we get back, okay? Okay. All right, it is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. It's just about 1 o'clock in the a.m. on Tuesday morning. The 18th of July, 2006. All right, we're privileged to have Elena Tinetti Vladimirova on the line with us uh, from her home in California. She'll be with us for another hour if we can keep her awake, and uh, uh, this will try to help keep people awake right here. We've got another song from Caulfield and the Magic, my friends who were just in here a little bo- uh, a little while ago, chatting with us, playing music around town, and. I'll come back in just a few minutes, and we'll have more from Elena. We've got some interesting developments over there in the chat room, and uh, we'll come back and talk with everybody in just a few minutes, all right? All right, it's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. Uh, on the web, kopn.org, www.mikehagen.com, and uh, listen to us streaming over the web through cosmicwavesradio.com. All right, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back in just a minute. This is, once again, a song from Caulfield and the Magic. Let's see if I can get the CD player to work right.
song Never thought I'd sing a song But I am right here Yeah. All right, there you have it. Caulfield and the Magic. Casey and Company. Rock and roll. Independent American music. I love it. Coming right from the heart here in Columbia, Missouri. And uh, keep making music, you guys. I love it, okay? All right, it's Mike. It's 5 after 1 in the a.m. on uh, Tuesday morning, okay? And it's Radio Orbit. K-O-P-N. Mike Hagan. H-A-G-A-N dot com. And the wonderful... Elena Tanetti Vladimirova on the line with me, uh, with me from California. And you can find information about Elena on the web at birthintobeing.com. And she's uh, an interesting woman, if you haven't figured that out yet. And she's made a wonderful video production that's called Birth As We Know It. And I've had the privilege and pleasure to watch it a number of times now. And that's what we've been talking about for the last hour. And we're going to continue to talk about that right now. So... Um, Elena, hi. Hi. Okay, uh, before the break there, we were talking about the Black Sea, and I'd like you just to clarify a little bit more about what was going on there, how many women were involved, and let's just talk about uh, how babies were being born there, and then we can bring the dolphins into the conversation. Okay. Um, Boy, that's a big (laughs) subject, really, and... um, Talking about it is not the same as actually watching it. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I mm-hmm. really encourage people to find a way of uh, watching the film because it it has an amazing effect on people just to see the images of um, women giving birth and the water was just just the whole scene is so magical and what was happening uh, was quite. Um, quite uh, spontaneous and there was nobody who were in charge really doing a head count or um, it, it was self-organizing mm-hmm. event mm-hmm. basically well I was sort of holding a sacred space and I was there the whole summer uh, and the couples were coming a um, couple of weeks before the birth and leaving a couple of weeks after the birth, but um, you, you never knew who is uh, who was going to show uh, up. Who is, yeah, well, we knew who will not show up. <laughs> the people who did not go through the whole program of preparation. Okay, all right, because there is a whole uh, preparatory, uh, right. elaborate preparatory phase to this whole. Very thing. elaborate, very deep, very. Uh, effective, profound um, work of preparing for that. Uh, you know, it's like a final exam after going to school for seven years. <laughs> right, and I, and I think you 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 mention in the in the film that uh, women and men, I guess to a certain extent, have to go through sort of a crash course in enlightenment. It doesn't matter what your PhD says, or it doesn't matter what sort of clothes you wear, or it doesn't matter what language you speak, when push comes to, to, to shove with this thing, you just have to uh, get down to basics. Right. It's not the moment when you can hide behind the, uh, uh, an idea of yourself mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. an image of yourself that mm-hmm. you've been cultivating your whole life. 
when it the birthing field starts um, spiraling around a woman, mm-hmm. you know, it it all brings up what's really there. Mm-hmm. What is it that sustains her right. from the inside? And her man has to really match, know how to hold the space for her. Mm-hmm. And that's why uh, the couples who even showed up for the program, but at the last trimester, they were not encouraged to come, and uh, it was not enough time for us to know that everything will be... That they would be able to Okay, manage. yeah. Hmm. So people who actually made it there were people in their full um, creative juices boiling (laughs) 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 on hot. (laughs) They knew that everything's going to be all right, and it was. You know, I never had to hold a needle in my fingers. Mm -hmm. We never had even as much as a tear. Amazing. Yeah. So it was just beautiful. And we have very few births recorded, filmed, because most of the births happened at night, actually, and we didn't have sufficient lighting. And also, for years, we didn't have the camera. We got the first camera when an American midwife came there to study with us and after she was done filming the, uh, all her visit, she just took the tapes and left her camera behind. That's how we have the footage that we have. Well, I tell you what, whether it was a gift or a mistake, whatever, it was an it was an angelic uh, thing because no, she, she it was a gift. Oh well, wonderful because it is the, the the what came out of that camera is astonishing, and I think for me, and as you mentioned. The visual is where it's at with this, but but I'll try my best to explain it a little bit. But when you see the the level of activity and awareness of the children that are being born in this particular environment, uh, especially when you can compare and contrast to uh, perhaps your own experience, if you have children and if you've had uh, uh, children that were birthed in a technological manner in a hospital or something like that. My first son, uh, Elena, was um, uh, was was cesarean section. As a matter of fact, uh, we had actually planned to do uh, a natural birth, and um, he was he was breech, and they insisted, you know, basically. Uh, and, and you know, and I, and I take I take the responsibility at this point. I mean, we're the parents of of our child, and we, uh, you know, we made the decision that that's what we would do. Uh, at any rate, so we, he came from cesarean section, and and he's a healthy. Uh, he'll be three years old in September, and he's the he's the love of my life, and he's a wonderful little boy, and um, you know, he's making his way into the world, but. I certainly can compare the way he was on the day of his birth and certainly on the third day after his birth, after he had been circumcised, which we can talk about here in a few minutes if you'd like. Um, But uh, comparing that to the children that I saw in your video immediately after their birth uh, in the water and sometimes attended by dolphins, it was 
could not have been more of a striking comparison. I mean, it's just black and white. Yeah, that's the thing, that um, these children are now teenagers, those that were born in mid-80s in the camps. And when I talk to them, I feel like I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> I feel like they're different species. Like they're, They feel to me so much more advanced and... Um, so much bigger. Mm. <laughs> yeah. um, I I'm just amazed. I I stand in awe mm. of what kind of people they are. I I can't even imagine what it's like to be them, <laughs> <laughs> because I am a product of my severe birth trauma. By the way, the statistics in the United States is 95% trauma. Mm -hmm. And 50% of um, that is rated as moderate to severe, and 45% is rated as severe birth trauma. So 45% of every child born in the U.S. supposedly goes through severe birth trauma. Yes. And and the other 50, and a full 95% go through some sort of trauma. Right. Moderate to severe. Right, and uh, that's the statistics done by mm-hmm. William Emerson, um, uh, one of the pioneers in the field of prenatal psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, he publishes a lot of his research. He has enormous body of research, and I have links on my site. And um, there is an enormous body of research, but somehow it's not being... Um, Delivered mm-hmm. for easy consumption. Yeah, it's really weird. And and when you look at, I mean, I just look at my my surroundings. I mean, I was delivered C-section in 1964. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my wife, uh, who's seven or eight years younger than me, she was delivered C-section. Um, my son, uh, you know, although he had a complication that. In some cases, people would say that this was the correct solution, and uh, and we were told that his umbilical cord was was uh, particularly short or something. But at any rate, uh, there's a whole lot of uh, of operations going on, and as you point out earlier, there's a lot of them that certainly aren't necessary. There are some that are, but there are a lot of the, there are a lot of them that are just sort of planned and um, for convenience and for whatever. Right, and breach, really, we we never considered it as uh, abnormality. It's just born, the the birth happens just the way the birth happens. Uh-huh. The uh-huh. baby comes out. Yeah. <laughs> just the, the other side up, but uh, the baby comes out. Uh-huh. And, uh, um, yeah, we had a number of breach babies and um, all kinds of breach <laughs> with different parts of the body right. and um, it was a normal birth nevertheless hmm. alright so that's another myth in other words this idea that you have to come out head first or this way or that way is maybe preferable or something but it's just that the baby comes out the way the baby comes out right and yes it is preferably head first but It's still not a, um, in in my understanding, but of course, um, I don't want to uh, put anyone, push anyone mm. 
over the edge. No, no, I understand. And you're speaking from your, ex- your experience, too. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a number of deliveries. I don't, I wouldn't be able to tell how many because at some point the movement became so large that uh, we weren't um, even informed of all the situations. Okay. And the camp also at some point became uh, larger than one lagoon could handle it. So it spread to few lagoons, and um, we not always knew what was happening uh, <laughs> behind the <laughs> on the other side, yeah, behind the rocks. Right, right, right. Okay, well, l- let's let's talk a little bit more about the dolphins and about how what what their role in this whole thing is, because I know that you think they play a, a, a pretty significant role. Right. Well, they do, and they don't in a sense, because um, their energy, their frequency, the the power of that um, state of being that they transmit, that's what plays the part. It's not like the dolphins are delivering the baby. They're mm-hmm. not really in the close proximity because the baby is born... Uh, on the shallow part where a woman can have uh, bottom of the sea under her feet so the water is no deeper than her hips Mm -hmm. really and the dolphins are uh, where it's deep enough for them to play Mm -hmm. so it's a significant distance and um, I'm sure at some point there will be some kind of floating device that (laughs) Um, can work to take the women out and uh, in the deep and be closer to them, but um, it hasn't been done yet. Okay. So the 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 presence of dolphins could be just the same in the dead winter in Siberia in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. If a woman is trained throughout pregnancy to crank up the volume, so to speak, uh-huh. if and she knows how to invoke that blissful frequency of dolphins. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't really have to travel to be in their physical presence. Right. It all comes down to frequencies, after all. Okay, all right. Yeah, and and the dolphins certainly have an amazing effect on human children. Right, Uh, right. I mean, apparently, whether they're in their presence or, like you say, it can be something that can be uh, effective from a distance too, uh, but certainly in their presence, the amazing things happen. Yes, and I would love to see the uh, that day when the birth can actually happen in the physical presence of dolphins. Mm-hmm. But I I don't have a concept of how that could be done at the moment because mm-hmm. um, at the Black Sea when we were. Um, Swimming out, it was very relaxing and safe because there is no sharks in the Black Sea. Mm. But everywhere else, um, if the depth allows for dolphins to come in, it means that the the sharks, sharks can, can come in too. In too. Sure. And there might be, you know, they sense blood better than anybody else. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they could be <laughs> right, at the right. site faster than dolphins. I see. So basically, I. Uh, well, I, I'm sure there is a lot of 
brilliant minds out there that can come up with a solution at some point well, how to overcome this problem, but it hasn't been dealt with as of yet. Okay. Well, I'm uh, I'm trying to decide I'm trying to decide where we should go next because uh, there are some interesting questions that are popping up in the chat room. Um, we have the topic of circumcision that we sort of just touched mm-hmm. on. Let's talk about it. All right, because yeah, I think it's okay to talk about it now because I do I I want to be clear uh, to my listeners, the people that know me, uh, about the striking comparison that I see between uh, children that are being born in a technological manner and then the way that I'm seeing in the presentation that Elena has made. And it's not just the video. I mean, it's speaking with her, of course, and uh, many other people along the road. You guys know who they are. You know, Michelle O'Dont, you've heard his name, Joe Pierce, and uh, many others who have done great work over these years. But Elena is really putting some stuff together here. And let me tell you, when you see the way these children behave and the way that they act at their age, days old, or, I mean... They're riding around on the backs of their brothers and wide-eyed and swimming. I mean, swimming, Elena. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, this, how old are these? A couple days or something? Oh, well, there are a few babies that are shown swimming. They're, the youngest one is four months, and the oldest one that is uh, riding on his mom's back um it's 11 months old. Yeah, well, I mean, they're they're doing amazing things, and and uh, I'm I was I'm fascinated when I see it because I can tell how old they are, and then I see you know my own son and other children around me, uh, their development at similar ages, you know, and my kid's a smart young man, and you know, and I think it's important that we mention this stuff, Elena, because it can be overcome, the, the uh, you know birth trauma. And the difficulties that we experience ourselves and that we uh, knowingly or unknowingly put our children through, we can, uh, they're amazingly resilient. And, Absolutely. And, and we can bounce back. So, all right, um, let's talk, we'll talk about the resilience in a minute, but first let's talk about why they need to be resilient. And so you, you did circumcise your son. I did. And, um, what was it? Well, it was, it was one of the most... Uh, you know, it was a hor- it was a horrible experience because I actually was there. I, I I insisted that I be allowed to be present in the room, in the uh, in the OR where they did it because I had I had I had reservations about doing it to begin with, and my wife and I both did, and we were just on the corner but not there yet. You know what I mean? And I hadn't been exposed to enough material, uh, the cultural uh, stereotype and indoctrination that we all face, uh, you know, was still very, very strong when it came to this. I myself am circumcised. So, you know, there was, well, I want him to look like me and that whole thing. And anyway, but something inside me said, well, if you're going to do this to your son, you damn straight better be in the room with him. And so I, 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 I did, and I found a doctor that was willing to let me be present, and that was hard because, for obvious reasons, if you've ever been to one of these things, you'll realize why they don't let parents in the room. Um, But at any rate, uh, it was a woman, and she uh, allowed me to be present, and we talked a lot about it beforehand. And there are two, at least in, in 
to my knowledge, there are two primary ways that they circumcise boys in this country. One is sort of a a longer, drawn-out procedure, which takes about 30 minutes, and uh, there's anesthesia involved, and it's a, a scalpel and sort of just the standard operation that you'd think of. Then there's this other procedure, which was the one that we opted for, which is a short, a more, it doesn't take as much time. It took about two and a half, maybe three minutes. Um, but it's brutal. And, uh, I, you know, I, I'll tell people what happens uh, to be as clear as I can. Uh, they take a little ring. It's a plastic ring. And they fit it to the size of the boy's penis. And they find it where it fits just over the top of the boy's penis, and it fits underneath the foreskin. The foreskin rolls up on top of this, this little ring, and it's plastic, and it has a, a channel in the middle of it. And what they do is they insert this ring. They put it over the, the tip of the boy's penis, underneath the foreskin. See, because the, the, the objective here is to remove a significant portion of the foreskin, not all of it, but a significant portion of it on the most sensitive part of the man's, of the boy's body, the, the most highly, and this is medically speaking, there are more neurons in this particular part of a boy's body than anywhere else. In that part of the skin, there is 20,000 very specialized erogenous nerve endings. Uh, thank you. Thank you for adding that. So anyway, it's a very serious and important place for a boy and for a man. And so anyway, they insert this ring then they take a piece of string. This is where it gets ugly, folks, so turn it down if you don't want to hear it. But they take a piece of string, and they carefully wrap the string uh, on the outside now of the boy's penis. So in other words, it, it goes string, then foreskin, and then little plastic ring on the inside with the channel. And the idea is to tighten the string, you see, uh, so that the string eventually... Uh, is enclosed in the channel of the ring and the blood supply is uh, eventually cut off and they tighten it. I mean, they basically just pull this thing super tight. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, and, uh, and then after that's done, then they can just cut away the remaining foreskin because the, there's no blood flow or anything to that part of the penis anymore, and then they just leave the thing. Uh, they just leave it tied, and the little ring stays on, and a few days later, the whole thing just sort of falls off. And uh, during the procedure, for the two and a half minutes that uh, if, you're, if you're brave enough, uh, first of all, if you're silly enough to put your son through it, you better be brave enough to go in there with him. And uh, it will be two and a half minutes that you never forget. I'll tell you that much, people. And uh, you will never wish it upon another boy on this planet, and you will never wish it upon uh, a girl for that matter. You know, to, to, to perpetrate violence of this manner against our children uh, at any time, much less right after they've been brought into this world, uh, is something that uh, once you see it and once you experience it, trust me, you will not have it. And, um, and Elena, my son, um, we have another son who's going to be born in September, and we know he's a boy. We found out a few weeks ago that he's a boy. 
And, you know, my wife and I are both very clear now that, it, that uh, you know, he will remain uh, intact as the Creator made him. So, at any rate, it was a, it was a profound experience for me, and, I, and I'm, I'm happy uh, to be able to share it with other people out there, including men. I mean, I need to share it with the men more than women, perhaps. But everyone needs to hear it, though, because there's this idea that babies can't feel pain and that, oh, it's no big deal, and, you know, and they'll get over it when they get older or whatever. But And, yeah, maybe... And they don't have a way of protesting. No, they can't defend themselves. Yeah. They can't defend themselves. All they can do is scream and cry and pray that you don't do it. And Uh, they scream bloody murder. Oh, my God. uh, You never heard anything like it. And they never forget. You know something? Cognitively, they forget. Well, I'll tell you something else. And, um, you know, it's 1.30 in the morning, and it's a personal story, and, and people can take it for what it's worth, and they can say that it's phooey. But uh, at around three months or four months of age, I forget exactly, we were having some real difficulty with, um, his name is Alistair, uh, with Alex in the evenings between 5, 6 o'clock. He was just a wreck, you know, and he would cry and cry and he was just very unhappy. And, you know, and we were just, and people just say, oh, well, it's just this or it's just the croup or it's just that or it's just a crying baby or whatever. And... And uh, But I knew there was something else, Elena, and I swear to God, one night I had, um, you know, a communication with my three-month-old son, and it basically was me saying that I was sorry, um, you know, and uh, believe it or not, after that, <laughs> he was okay, you know, uh, it changed everything. Uh, and our relationship is is a deep, strong relationship, you know, for um, as short a time as we've been friends, you know. Yes, and babies are very forgiving, and if they feel loved and wanted and nurtured and received and taken care of, they are willing to forgive any abuse that we put them through. Mm-hmm. But wouldn't it be nicer not to put them through that abuse in the first place? It sure would. Yeah. Yeah. And um, um, I think the only reason American mothers give their sons into this amputative surgery is because they have no idea what it's like, what it looks like, what it feels like, and what unbelievably deep scarring impact it has on their sons mm-hmm. and how much work those boys have to make to reconnect mm-hmm. with their mothers and with the world after they've been raped. You know, it's nothing less than that. Yeah, it's a violation. And and there's a tremendous uh, amount of talk about similar things that happen to girls, you know, the, the uh, vaginal mutilation and female circumcision and these horrible things. Yeah, statistically, it's about 3 million girls every year that are circumcised in the um, Middle East and Africa. Absolutely un- unacceptable, and it must end. But at, the, but at the same time, we have to recognize that we're doing the same thing to boys right here and acting like it's no big deal. And, and we have a culture of violence and we're all upset about the violence that's being perpetrated primarily by men, and yet the first thing we do to most of our men is 
commit an act of violence against them as babies. And well, that's the thing, that uh, that excruciating pain goes into their limbic imprint. Oh, and back to, the limbic, back yeah. to the limbic imprint, okay. And then it, whatever our limbic imprint is, hardwires into our nervous system as our comfort zone. As a comfort zone? Yes. So suffering and inflicting pain can becomes be, our comfort zone. And that can be interpreted as love or something? Yeah. Yeah, that's what limbic imprint is. It's like, um, it's like with elephants. You know, for, center, for millennia, in India, they, uh, the way they were domesticating elephants, they would tie their leg to the pole and keep them on the chain. And in the first week, the elephant goes crazy and uh, hurts his leg with the chain because um, the elephant is trying to escape. And after a week, um, it's done. He mm. would never try again. And when the elephant grows and he would be able to pull that pole out with no effort, he never tries. Amazing. Hmm. It just establishes the size of the world. Hmm. And in a sense, that's the way of breaking the spirit. Right, right. And then it's much easier manageable crowd. It's actually, that's, how uh, it historically um, uh, was adopted thousands of years ago. It started in the um, African tribe where they believed. I actually have this whole thing on my site with pictures. They believed that babies are born double-gendered. So the female part of the penis, uh, the foreskin, has to be removed from infant boys and the male part of the genitalia, the clitoris, mm-hmm. has to be removed out from the girl. Oh, my gosh. So it started as this somebody's you know, crazy idea, uh, uh, as a superstition, as a mm-hmm. lack of n- respect for the creator mm-hmm. uh, that, that we were created this way. Right. You know? Exactly. And... Um, but it caught on because the shamans who were ruling the tribes noticed that the population in the villages that had this tradition was much easier huh. maneuverable mm-hmm. than the tribes didn't have that. Very interesting. And then apparently um, when there was uh, the lifestyle in the desert with very little water and little hygiene, it was also a tool of um, keeping, um, you know, infections away and, and all the, it was just hygienic reason. Mm-hmm. But we don't have lack of water, well, relative um, lack. We, we have enough showers to keep ourselves clean. Mm-hmm. So... I understand why it was done millennia ago, but why do we do it in the 21st century right, in America? Right. Well, we don't have to, there right. is not one medical association in the world that recommends circumcision, including American Medical Association. <laughs> America is the only country that does it without religious 
um, reason. Right, right. To 95% of the boys. Actually, in California, it's down to 20%. Because the organization that started uh, the fight 20 years ago, uh, I have a link to that organization on Mm -hmm. my site. Mm -hmm. Um, It's based in Northern California. Let's, Elena, let's, let's mention the website again real fast here. It's uh, no circumcision, no circumcision.com. Marilyn Millis, my dear friend, started it 20 years ago when she uh, realized what happened. And the footage in my film um, is hers. Mm. She was generous uh, enough to let me use her footage to show what it looks like. Again, it's a, yeah, and, and, and you were discreet because it's much worse than that, <laughs> you know. Um, at any rate, uh, I'm glad that it's being shared and people are talking about it and, uh, and, and realizing what's really happening here. All right, and also, uh, Elena's website, of course, birthintobeing.com, and you are listening to Mike Hagan, and it's Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. We've been talking with Elena for uh, the last hour and a half or so, and it's just fascinating and wonderful. And I thank you for your time, Elena. We've got about 15 minutes left here, so let's uh, continue while we've got the time. You know, uh, I'm going to ask you a question, if you don't mind, uh, about uh, because somebody brings it up here in the chat room, and they ask if you are familiar with the so-called aquatic ape theory. This is a theory of evolution that has to do with us coming out of the water. Right, uh, Michelle Adon was uh, promoting that theory, and yes, I, I am. Um, Again, it's just another. What theory. about it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, I, that, that was it. I just want to know if you were familiar, and uh, certainly there, it's it's another one of these evolutionary biology questions, and certainly Elena recognizes it as such. I guess. R- right. Uh, I I think. At this point, when um, we are already here, we have to really learn to be here. Mm. How how that happened, really, we can have you know each one of us can have our own theory, and and um, we all will be right. Right, I agree. Okay. But it's really irrelevant on our capacity to open our hearts and love each other right here in this body right now. Uh And however our bodies were formed, we can speculate um, forever. But unless we actually learn to be in the present with each other, it's all just a mental structure, a mental game. We... We really urgently <laughs> need to find ways of coexisting in peace and bliss and <laughs> love and all that juicy, yummy uh-huh. stuff. And um, wouldn't it be great to know how we came to be the way we are? It would be. But, um, you know, I have my theories. Somebody else have their theories, right, and right. and they're all good. I, right. I love them all. Right. <laughs> yeah, the important thing is that we are, though, and we are here, and we have to do our best while we're here in the midst of all this. So um, I'd like to mention, 
uh, my friend Dr. Michael Heisen, who showed up in the chat room just a little while ago. Hi, Michael. <laughs> and Star is there as well, so we can say hi to Star. Hi, Star. And uh, there is uh, something that I'd like to mention of Michael. He wrote a wonderful paper, uh, paper called The Precocious Human Baby. And it's available on his site, and you can link there from my site as well, but it's planetpuna.com. But I think it's worth mentioning because uh, that seems to be what we're seeing from these water-birthed babies. We see babies that are highly active, highly aware, and much more developed, it seems, than hospital-birthed babies, at least. Yeah, they are so present. They have no traces of fear or reservation in their eyes. It's just beautiful to Mm. see human beings so completely comfortable with themselves. It's um, an amazing experience to be in their presence. They just generate that sense of rightness of being that is generally in such shortage (laughs) on on our um, planet of tears. Yeah. My gosh, Elena. And uh, and it's a lot of this is, of course, all of this is based in science as well. I mean, there's plenty of evidence that shows that uh, that water birth ba- uh, water birth babies develop faster. They um, their their brain sizes increase more quickly. This sort of thing. Yeah, in Russia there was not many um, studies done. We didn't really have resources and people and knowledge how to do the the studies you know you're supposed to have control groups and these groups and and we just didn't have time and energy to run uh, the tests there was one pretty big study uh, done in 87 in Petersburg um, that showed that their cognitive functions were all the parameters were about four times Better, bigger, faster, whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, but it was only a study about their cognitive functions, and there are so many more parameters that weren't even touched. Right, right. You know, their telepathic capacities, for example, mm-hmm. their ability to um, feel each other yeah, and very, themselves. Very empathetic. Right. Mm-hmm. The have the ability to feel their feelings. Most of us are thinking what we feel. Uh (laughs) And that's a very, very big substitute for our emotional body to to experience our feelings mentally. Mm. Our bodies are not catching up with it because uh, a lot of the actual, in real time, Feelings, emotions, sensations are not being received and respected. So that's another aspect of preparation to actually activate the ability to feel the feelings in real time. Mm. And again, this uh, we really haven't mentioned the terminology much during the night, but this is the idea behind conscious childbirth. Right. Right? I mean, being conscious, being aware, being in the moment, right there. Right. Not um, looking backwards. We have a really funny saying in Russia. It's uh, translated would sound something like, 
If only I would be as smart as my wife afterwards. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that proverbal wife that says, you should have done this. You should have done. If only I'd be as smart as my wife afterwards. <laughs> you know, uh, I've, I've mentioned this before on the air, but it's one of my, it's a similar phrase, but I love it. And it comes from uh, Kazakhstan or Afghanistan or one of the, uh, one of the stands over there, but this, the, the saying is, a man may be a fool and not know it, but not a married man. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm reminded often enough uh, of my foolishness, and um, most of us men need to be reminded of that. Uh, you know, now and again. So uh, all of this stuff that you're doing and the work with the children is the work of women. And uh, I think that the more us men recognize that and recognize that we do play a part in it, but certainly not uh, the role that we've played uh, in a medical sense over the last century. Um, and the work that you're doing, Elena, to... to, to um, bring back some things that have been lost and uh, and add some new things to them. It's just remarkable and uh, wonderful stuff. So I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Thank you. And yes, it is work of women, but I can't even begin to uh, describe how much easier that work is when a woman feels supported by her partner, by the father of the child. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's why the preparation includes the conscious conception because um, the choice of a partner that is going to um, be part of gestation, preparation, and birthing experience, it's a very important part. The man is a very... it, It makes all the difference, really. The presence, the participation, the... Her witnessing his willingness to deal with his own birth trauma, mm-hmm. because if the man is not going through with healing his own birth trauma, he is going to sort of compromise the birthing field mm-hmm. at the time of delivery of his child. I would like to to finish off talking with the, about this a little bit. We 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 started early in the conversation talking about limbic imprint, mm-hmm. and certainly. Many, many, many of us, both men and women, uh, have had a, a tremendous amount of uh, stress and difficulty in our own births. And so my question is for me and for lots of the listeners out there who have been through these things personally, please talk a little bit, Elena, about the resilience of adults and, and how we too can overcome the things that uh, have happened to us in the past uh, in, in, in the method of our birth and through abuse as we've grown up in our lives or whatever. Absolutely. And most of us did grow up um, not well-nurtured, not mm-hmm. the way we needed to be nurtured. Even if our parents loved us tremendously, it doesn't mean that we necessarily would feel loved. Mm-hmm. Because our parents mostly did not know how to express their love in the way that would be actually um, 
um, be receivable. And it's not their fault because they were not role modeled how to do that too. Yes. And they had even tougher times with uh, everything that was going on in the world, all the wars and mm-hmm. revolutions and stress of surviving. And most of us, uh, most of us are still running in that surviving mode when all the smushy, fussy, warm feelings and uh, all the <laughs> Um, sweetness of um, safety, of expressing the love and warmth and connection and all the cuddly, huggy, Mm. (laughs) um, affectionate ways of um, being with children and having it safe for children to be held and touched and massaged and kissed and... um, it's um, that's what babies want, mm. and um, very few of us actually had it. You know, statistically speaking, it's ninety-five percent birth trauma, but it depends where you place the criteria. Right. I estimate much less when, <laughs> in twenty-five years of my work, I think it's only about two percent mm. of population uh, that actually had the birth that we as species supposed to have. Hmm. And um, the good news is that there is ways of healing it. Um, and they're numerous. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's all up to our intention and our willingness. And where is the will, there is a way. Mm-hmm. You know? That's right. Thank you. And... Um, um, I'm sure in every area, wherever our listeners are, there are practitioners who offer that kind of services that uh, will lead a person to their own personal healing of birth trauma. And um, uh, I would be careful, though, with the ways for quite a a long time there were uh, very popular ways of reliving the trauma that was supposed to be leading to healing of it. But what I noticed is for for years people were staying symptomatic with it. So relieving the, the trauma didn't really free from it. It sort of reinforced it every time the person was going deep into the experience. And time didn't matter. You can uh, receive your birth trauma every day of your life if you wish to. And many people unconsciously create their life in a way that they're recapitulating their birth trauma every day. Right. Amazing. Yeah. And unfortunate. Mm. The the, uh, important thing to remember is that we can always uninstall the old program. That's right. That's right. Dealing with trying to figure out what exactly went wrong, we can just um, install all new software. That's right, and uh, it's possible, certainly, and yeah, many and people have done it. So. Right, and that's basically what the preparation starts with, with dealing with uh, the, the all those un- <laughs> favorite California phrase, unresolved mm. issues. Right, right, right. 
and um, and then going from there, you just increase your capacity to experience bliss right. in the body. Normally, we have very low ceiling, so to speak. How much bliss can you handle safely without burning your circuits? Mm-hmm. So the reality is that the sky is the limit. <laughs> it, it's nobody hit the limit yet, really. Um, it's um, it's the unknown territory. It is fascinating, and it is uh, right on our doorstep, Elena, because there are many, many changes that are right here, right now, and we're seeing a lot of it in some of these children that are being born, even though it's a very small percentage. Right. And being high is their comfort zone. They just never severe their connection with the source from which they arrive. Mm-hmm. So they don't have to use drugs or experiment with all kinds of dangerous situations to feel the extreme um, sense of being alive. You know, most of us have to go through life proving to ourselves that we're alive because our limbic imprint is numbness. Right. Because we were drugged. Hmm. So we have to pinch ourselves and hurt ourselves so we would know that we really exist. Hmm. And those children who were not traumatized, they are free from that constant battle with... with, um, those strange energies when there is this need to go high and the only known social way is to get stoned. Hmm. Absolutely fascinating. Or get numbed. That's why most Americans spend four, five, six hours in front of TV. Mm -hmm. Another one of their favorite drugs. Right, being numb. Right. Not living the life, missing this incredible, beautiful opportunity because life is so short, really. Hmm. It's really a very short opportunity that we have this incredible, exquisite instrument that our bodies are. And we have this amazing um, access to the sensations of green grass on our bare feet and swimming in those big waves in the ocean and, and <laughs> feeling the sun on our skin and and kissing and loving each other <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and being in in a very warm, sweet communication with each other. Well, I think it's a beautiful image and it's one that I want to see move forward, Elena. And uh, let me tell you, a lot of other people do too because uh, I have to... Uh, relay a message here. Mike, be sure to tell Elena that we love her. This has been a wonderful show, etc., etc. There's lots of comments like that coming in already. So um, we are at the end of our rope, though, however, and we're almost ready to wrap things up here, Elena. So I'm going to have to say uh, a kind thank you and farewell. And you're a beautiful woman and uh, with a beautiful spirit, and thank you for the wonderful work that you're doing. You're very welcome. Thank you for receiving me. Uh, you're welcome, and um, we'll be sure we stay in touch uh, after the fact here, okay? Okay. All right, thanks, and take care, and have a wonderful evening, all right? You too. Good night, Elena. Bye. All right, everybody, there you have it. Uh, Elena Tanetti, amazing stuff uh, from this woman. Elena Tanetti Vladimirova, to be exact. 
And uh, thanks for being here, Elena. And thanks to everybody else who listened to the program. Next week, Marco Roden will be back on the air. And we'll do it up with Marco. And we'll have this interview and this show up on the web here shortly, probably 24 hours or so. And I also want to mention that I did a, a special show on Friday night with Mary Sparrow Dancer that was very interesting and really good, too. And I'm going to put that up on the web in the next day or so as well. So there will be a couple new programs over the next day or so, and I hope you grab them and share them with people and let uh, other people hear the amazing information that uh, people like Elena are sending out to the rest of the world, okay? All right, it's Mike, as I said, Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. Check us out on the web, www.mikehagen.com. Thanks to everybody who helps make it happen. One more song here from Caulfield and the Magic, and uh, we'll see you next week.